Welcome to episode 286 with my guest, Stacy Reynolds. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. Uh, I'm not a therapist. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. The website for this show is mentalpod.com. Uh, go there, check check it out. All kinds of good stuff there. We've got a forum. Uh, we've got blogs, guest blogs. Um, you can fill out a survey. Maybe we'll read your survey on the show. Um, and um, there's also links if we mention, uh, you know, check this thing out on the on the podcast. Um, a lot of times we'll put a link to that under the show notes on the uh, the web page for that episode. And um, speaking of links, I uh, want to remind any of you in the Bay Area that I am coming there. Let's see, this is airing Friday. So I'll be coming there in about five days, uh, July 20th and 21st. I'm going to be in Oakland uh, performing at the uh, New Parkway Theater. Actually, not performing. We're doing um, two nights of live podcast recording, and uh, the theme is Raised in a Cult. And um, one of my guests is uh, Glenn Washington, who is the uh, host and a producer of the podcast Snap Judgment. And the other person is the grandson of uh, L. Ron Hubbard, the founder of Scientology. So I'm sure they're going to have fascinating stories to uh to talk about, and I'm really looking forward to that. The um, the shows uh, are at seven o'clock, and it's twenty dollars um, for each show, or thirty dollars for both shows. So please uh, come check it out, and I'll put a link up to um, on the on the website for how to buy tickets because the link is too long to say exactly what it is. But I'm really looking forward to it. I had a good time the last time we went up there and did uh, did a live recording. Uh, before I read some of these surveys, um, this episode with Stacy was recorded quite a while ago, and there's a point in the interview where I say, um, uh, she asked about my relationship with my mom, and um, it's a little confusing because this was two years ago, and um, obviously since then, I've uh, decided to um, completely cut contact uh, with her, and she um, has since heard the podcast and heard me talk about the things that um, happened to me that uh, that she did in childhood. And um, so I don't know if that makes any sense. When you hear it, who gives a shit? Listen to the fucking podcast. Here's some surveys. These are from the Struggle in a Sentence survey. And a guy who calls himself Not Steve says about his depression, like everyone is watching you drown in a shallow river. That is, these are all so good. Babushka Jr. says about her depression, uh, I feel like I'm a soda can that is somehow materialized at the bottom of the ocean and is immediately crumpled into itself by the pressure. Uh, and about her hypomania, a sweaty, shaky, confident high with an irritable edge. Kind of like cocaine. Cheap cocaine. That's really what hypomania is. Free cocaine. I love hypomania, but it is... Ugh. It is, uh, there's usually some wreckage with hypomania. Um, Allie, who is um, a trans female, 
writes about uh, having dyspraxia. And she writes, dyspraxia is like trying to type on a lagging keyboard. You know how you want to move, but your body takes extra time to process it. About living with an abuser. I've been told I'm a liar so many times I've forgotten my own truth. Snapshot from her life. My mother screamed at me and told me that if I didn't stop crying, she'd drive me to a mental institution and leave me there. That just sounds like good, solid parenting. And a selfless mom who's willing to drive you where you need to go. So I don't know what you're complaining about. Um, yeah, sending you, sending you some love. That is fucking horrible. This was filled out by Thea. And Thea writes about her depression, too lethargic to think up anything evocative or thought-provoking to say about my depression. I think that's the worst part of it. There is no language I can use to break the walls between me and others. There is no way to make anyone understand. Well, you know what? We understand, and boy, did you hit the nail on the head with that. It is, it is, um, it is so hard to put into words what it feels like, and there are a few things when you're in a trough of depression few things more taxing than trying to describe it to somebody. It's like trying to des- describe uh, what fog is really like. Um, about having body dysmorphic disorder, I know I'm not fat, I just don't believe it. That's pretty profound. A snapshot from her life, purging in a porta potty instead of just letting myself digest a simple meal, not being able to hold my hair back because one hand is keeping my nose shut and the other is jammed down my throat, covering the evidence up with a lot of toilet paper, then joining my friends like nothing happened. I hope you open up to somebody about that. That is heartbreaking that you're you're keeping that secret. But um, I certainly know what what it's like when you're in that pain and you find that blunt coping tool that you know is unhealthy, but it's um, on a certain level, it works a little bit. But yeah, sending you some love. Uh, this is filled out by Prozac, Wellbutrin, Xanax, oh my. <laughs> she writes about uh, her anorexia. It's mine, all mine, a sweet, a sweet, sweet hit of control that lessens my powerlessness Uh, about her anger issues. Fear that I know what I'm capable of and having no way of knowing if today is the day I do something I can never take back. And uh, after the birth of my, a snapshot from her life, after the birth of my second child, my postpartum depression came rushing back immediately. When my son was two months old, I was so overwhelmed from his crying that I grabbed a golf club and smashed 20 to 25 holes in the wall of my garage. Afterwards, I was shaking uncontrollably, but I felt so much better. I fear that I'm inadequate. I fear that I'm inadequate. So recently I've been punching myself a lot. Sometimes I feel like my full-time job Mental illness is convincing myself I'm so alone. Why hypervigilance I should try to do something. I hate my kids seeing me like that. I just imagine killing people. I woke up with rats in my hair. They warp reality. Am I losing myself or am I becoming myself? I go back to bed. Hiding underneath the sofa while people were shooting outside the house. I was able to get myself out of Scientology. Put a gun to my mother's head and I was 11 years old. And you're just garbage moving from one person's house to the next person's house. And you just hope they don't throw you out like garbage. 
you know, so I planned my suicide. Because you won't ask for help. I'm asking for help. I'm not pretending everything's okay. I'm not trying to do it alone. I'm really happy that I did it because a lot of good things have happened since then. That, that option just evaporated and I'm, I'm not going to kill myself. I don't think I have what the woman who is not right for me anyway <laughs> wants. I'm here with Stacy Reynolds, who's a listener uh, who emailed me. And do you remember what you said in your uh, in your email? Originally, it yeah. was that my father sexualized me really early and that we had that in common. And I had written something because you were beating yourself up. And I was saying, you need to not beat yourself up because it's the flaws and the imperfections that make us want to listen. So that was originally. And then recently, I emailed because I knew I was going to be in town. And um, I've been dealing with my mom in therapy. <laughs> you shared a little bit of yeah. uh, a snippet of your uh, of your mom. Uh, share the snippet that you you shared with me in the in the email. Yeah, I had just gotten out of a therapy session, and I called her because she was thinking about coming up to visit us. And um, we ended up getting into a a slight argument, not really an argument, more of a. A judgment, I would say, on her part about how I should be teaching English as a second language, which she's never studied. And I have a master's degree in education, not specifically English teaching, but language acquisition and teaching. And um, she kept telling me I was doing it wrong. And oh so I, I basically said, I don't want to talk about this anymore and kind of hung up the phone on her and then called my therapist right back and said, can you get me in tonight? Yeah, and, and for did, an emergency. Did you, and did no, we, we talked. We talked okay. later. You got a good therapist. Yeah, she's amazing. Yeah. Actually, I just graduated, and we're not. We're finishing. How long did it uh, take? Um, this time it was. Uh, <laughs> well, stuff comes up in layers. Yeah, so it makes that's sense. That's exactly that, what she always. She's yeah. like, well, I guess now you're, you know, you're ready to to deal with your mom, which I'd never really, never really thought about before. But I was there from like the let's see, middle of June until just maybe two weeks ago. So little, that's pretty little short. fine tuning. Yeah. yeah oh, because some, this wasn't your first go around. With yeah, me. I see. <laughs> no, this was not my first go around. <laughs> uh, where's a good place to start talking about uh, <clears throat> your, your life, your story? Give us some of the broad issues that you struggle with. You mm-hmm. know, while I do want to certainly touch on the, um, the stuff that our parents did what they were like the home environment and stuff like that because uh, i think it's super important uh sometimes i'll listen back to an episode and i'll be like man i focused way too much on their on their parents and i didn't focus <laughs> enough on what what they're struggling with today or uh, i don't know yeah so i i want to if there's I like a bulleted list, so let me let me go through the list. Bring your your yeah. inner teacher out yep. for us, Stacy. Mm-hmm. So the biggest things are um, I'm alcoholic. I'm in recovery for four years, actually, in August. Congratulations! Yeah, um, and I I grew up with chaos. My father's out al- was alcoholic. He's no longer living. Um, He's drinking God's bottle now. Yes. Well, I don't know if it's, it's God. I don't know if I even believe he's in that. He's drinking someone's bottle. Yeah, he's he's sucking something dry right now. Yeah. Oops, sorry. Yeah. I'm just going to try and knock over the table while That's I cross right. my legs. Make yourself comfortable. Um, and then my dad died in, what, 2002. And then he kind of set off a spiral of, of death for me. And within, I want to say, 10 years, we lost something like eight or nine people. Really? And a cat in there somewhere who got cancer and suddenly 
suddenly watched her die, which was really... And did, did they at least have the uh, dignity to tag-team each other uh, as they were dying, so the next person would know it was their turn to One die? One of them did. One of them did. But, okay. but all the others, they just kind of said, mm, time to go. And, you know, okay. some of them I was ready, and it was okay. But um, a couple of them were pretty pretty traumatic, and I eventually never really had time to grieve anybody. And I, I just started drinking more, drinking more, grieving, drinking, grieving were all the same thing for me. Um, my brother's fully alcoholic right now, living at home with my mom, um, and he's older than me. So he's, what, 40, 45, and he lives at home with my mom. <laughs> oh, my and, God. Uh, I can't imagine how sad he has to be. Or is I he, know. Is he not in touch with – he's probably not in touch with his feelings. He's probably just numb and shut down. I don't down. think so anymore. Not anymore. Yeah. Um, after my dad died, I cut myself off from my family with the help of a therapist at that time. Um, Anybody other than you and your brother? Nope. Cousins and stuff, but, yeah. you know, as we get older, we're not – we all kind of yeah. – in fact, I don't think I really knew anything about any of them until maybe the last five to ten years. And you're originally from the western suburbs of mm-hmm. Chicago, and now you live in the Twin Cities. Yep. Um, so go ahead. Keep keep talking. Okay. The rest of the bulleted list. Mom issues. She kind of took over as the bad guy. Or you know how when you have like someone who's the evil person in the family, you need someone who's the nice person who's on your side, kind of supposedly, but not really. But then, you know, mm-hmm. when the evil person is gone, you see all the... All the evil that was there that you just didn't, you didn't see. You know, my therapist always describes it as like a mobile that hangs above a ch- child's crib, mm-hmm. and it's it's in balance. But when you pull one, like if if somebody gets sober or somebody dies, um, all, everybody else shifts then to try to create some kind of harmony or balance sick harmony right. or balance be- right, right. because we're all used to playing our roles you know i'm the victim yeah. or i'm the bully or whatever and then that one person drops out and everybody else is going who the fuck am i yeah exactly what, what, what <laughs> am i rescuing am i asking to be rescued am i you know yeah. what, what am i what am i doing yeah um so things kind of turned upside down when your when your dad died. Yeah, I mean, I to be honest, I was glad, you know, and and was it a relief to you when he I, died? I felt like a. It, it, here's what's really funny is I'm I used to be a marathoner. I'm not anymore. He died the Thursday before my second marathon, and I was just like, "Fuck you!" Unfucking believable. Right before you got to fuck out, you know shit on everything that I do, don't you? You just got to shit on all of it. And it was as uh, if he chose how yeah, how exactly. and when he was going to die. Exactly because okay. why wouldn't he? It's all about me, right? You know. The, un- the untreated alcoholic. Were right. you untreated at that point? Oh, yeah. 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 And that, but I wasn't drinking at that time. Not not really. But you still had the ism. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I totally, a- you know, when I look back at my life, I totally understand all of the patterns and all of the things I did all along because it was there always. I just didn't, I didn't actively start drinking until actually after 21 and then not really the way it got really bad until my 30s. Mm-hmm. And so, so I had a whole, I'm lucky I had a whole lifetime without alcohol. So I know how easy it is to have fun without it and what life feels like not drinking. You know, it's a big advantage for me. I don't have to look for sober activities because to me, everything is a, you or know, that's a, a sober that, activity. That's nice. I started yeah. get, getting fucked up when I was 14. So, um, <laughs> all the stuff that I enjoyed doing would have been riding my right, bike. Sir. Oh my God, I brought you some bubble gum. Yeah. Th- throwing mud <laughs> at cars. Pulling girls hair. Yeah. Um, so 
before before we get to that stuff, let's talk about what what was what was your house like uh, growing up. Talk talk about this. Well, this it was shaped sh- in a it was a square. I would say. <laughs> Did it have windows? Yeah, we had windows. It was it was bad seventies and like <laughs> leftover, probably built in the fifties. Terrible decor. But um, it was chaos. It was absolute chaos. I was in therapy. We talked about my very first memory, which was um, sitting on. Um, sitting on my chair at the kitchen table and my dad making some comment about hamburger and where it comes from and my mom turning to him and and I still remember it so distinctly she was like don't say that to her she's not going to want to eat it and I didn't understand what any of that meant and so I thought am I not supposed to eat the hamburger now should I I don't know what to do I was a little bit of a pleaser and so I started crying which I did constantly I was a really big crybaby and I remember my my dad did something i don't remember exactly what he said because it's you know fuzzy but i do remember a chair um getting thrown back because i think my mom got out of her chair really really fast and knocked the chair over and she ran into the bathroom and locked herself in and was crying and that's my first memory (laughs) yeah seems like an odd thing to run into the bathroom over yeah which means i remember my emotional remember is memory is that i remember thinking he was going to hit her Mm. I don't know if that's actually true or not, but I remember something happening that was Did you ever see him violence. hit her? No. No, he wouldn't have. That's the I easy w- way out. I wonder, I, w- <laughs> I wonder if it was just one of those situations where shit had built up between them and she's yeah. like, you know, you... Yeah, who knows? Just to it, you know, if she was you know, codependent to your totally. dad's alcoholism um there there can be a lot of kind of emotional manipulation oh, yeah. and playing the martyr and oh my god he was so bad about that we were all out to get him because <laughs> you know and a, a two or three year old child is definitely out to get her father well, i was talking about the the, oh, my the, mom? the mom but both, oh, yeah. both are the same way in many ways oh, yeah, i think codependence totally... and alcoholism are, are, are the same sickness it's oh, all yeah. about self i think codependents just hide it hide the selfishness better they fool themselves into thinking that they're they're at everyone's beck and call, but a lot right. of times they're doing it, you know, so oh, they look good yeah. or so they don't feel guilty. It's so often it's not mm-hmm. coming from a place of genuine, right? Genuine giving. It's 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 coming from a place of resentment. Right, right, right. Um, and it's about image. Yeah. What does everybody think of me? God, who doesn't? <laughs> who doesn't? Yeah. Um, I'm getting past that at 43. It's only taken me, you know, this long. <laughs> I don't think I'll ever get over it. I don't think I'll ever. I have moments where I feel really secure and I'm like, you know, people don't like me or what I'm about, you know. Yeah. Fuck them. You're also in the public eye, though. I have the option of living my nice little quiet life where nobody knows who I am or gives a shit about me. And so I have I'm able to not give a shit about other people, too. Yeah, you I know? guess so. I never thought about that. I never thought about you, Stacy. I, I just think about me. You probably should have, because I'm important <laughs> in my own brain, like a true alcoholic. So, what are some other some other memories? Other memories. They another big thing that happened apparently is they moved me up um, in the middle of kindergarten because I could I guess tie my shoes better than other kids or I could read when I was three, and that's part of why they moved me up. But I that seems like a more likely reason yeah. to move a kid up than they oh, could yeah. tie their shoes. But I do remember being I able hope. to read the chalkboard in um, in kindergarten, and nobody else could. And I I saw the teacher's notes for herself, and I would see my name up there, and I was like, Oh my god, I'm in trouble. What did I do? What did I do? Said something about tying shoes, and you know, like little notes for who who needs to know what. And and I remember thinking I was in trouble immediately. 
because that's what you do when you're raised by alcoholics. Everything is your fault. So you immediately go, oh, my God, I'm in trouble in kindergarten. Everything is our fault. Yeah. Or we we take credit. Yeah. For it's basically it's all about us. Yeah, it really is. Doctors are the turn of the, you know, the end of the 19th century. Um, before alcoholism was really understood and there was any kind of recovery uh, programs for it, the three things that that all doctors could agree on uh, about addicts and alcoholics was they're uh, emotionally immature, uh, they're self-centered, and they're hypersensitive to criticism. Yeah. The first time I heard Isn't that, that a great I, way to live? I was like, oh my God, that it's that hurts. That it's that so is so fun. that strikes so so deeply. Yeah. Um. I had a similar experience, too, when I was in yeah. first grade. They brought me down to the principal's office, and I thought I was in trouble, and they made me... I was like, why are they making me read? And then I found out <laughs> afterwards it was a it was a book for, like, eighth graders. Yeah. And, and they were looking at each other mm-hmm. like, you know, isn't this a big deal? And I was like, I was... It went from, like, horror to, like, oh, my God, I'm special. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. People like me. Yeah. Um So, apparently, I had a really hard time adjusting. And, you know, being a crybaby, I cried all the time. I remember them pulling me out of class and saying, why don't you go get some water after I had peed in my pants for like the 500th time, because I just had a really hard time socially adjusting. And, um, you know, it came out in therapy that I had not thought about it in ages. And just one of those things that went to the back of my mind came up recently. We talked about it. Um, That's got to be pretty traumatic, wetting your pants in front of people, though, when you're a kid. Yeah. It's. I never learned how to that I was supposed to ask because they pulled me out of kindergarten, like when we were learning social skills and things, and so I didn't know I was supposed to ask, and so I didn't know I was supposed to raise my hand, and I really had to go, and I would just go. Oh, that's kind of. I know. That's kind of heartbreaking <laughs> thinking about that little. I know, and yet stupid at the same time. <laughs> like, I always feel so bad when I come home and one of my dogs has pooped or peed. I just think they're just sitting there in silence. Yeah. You know? Who knows? Maybe they hold it for five seconds and they're like, they're fuck like, this guy. <laughs> uh, so go ahead. But um, I lost my train of thought, which I do a lot because I think circularly. You're socially nervous. <laughs> um, you, oh, you, um, you moved up. Uh, I was really, really confused. Like I, I remember entire um, sections of elementary school where I would look around and I have pretty distinct memories of looking around and everyone else was working. I had no idea what they were doing because I apparently hadn't heard, hadn't paid attention, didn't know I was supposed to be doing. I just have, I was clueless through most of elementary school. Because you were just going to fantasy land? I guess. Yeah. But I remember distinctly looking around and being like, am I supposed to be doing something right now? Oh my God. What? I don't, wait, what are they working? Do we have a worksheet? And I would like go into anxiety panic at, at you know, eight so years anxiety, old. So anxiety and panic are kind of a through line in yeah, your, in your yeah, story. Yeah, a very yeah. pleasant one. I really enjoy them. I really like fight or flight mode. It makes me so happy. You know, kick stuff up, makes you lose weight. (laughs) There can be, you know, fear is a great motivator. I forget who said that, but it it is. I remember when I moved to Los Angeles, I never got more work done than I did that first year because I was like, (laughs) I am going to starve. You know, I just had this image of being homeless and starving and uh, that will but i hate that feeling when you wake up in the morning and it's panic yeah it's panic yeah and you don't quite know where you are that's the worst that's having the disorientation i recently um over the like the last three months have been having a lot of disorientation not knowing where i am just because i'd be blanked out for a minute and kind of daydreaming and then i'd jump out of it and not know where i was and found out that's part of ptsd i was gonna say uh, yeah 
when when you have abusive an abusive or abusive uh two abusive uh parents um yeah kids learn to go into their head to retreat mm-hmm. into their into fantasy land and yeah. that stays with you for a long for i think maybe forever it's really hard oh, yeah. to be present it is it is yeah. a struggle to be present when you when you check out as a kid, do you remember actively checking out other oh, than yeah. other than in, in uh, around your parents? Did you in school? That's yeah, right. In but but other than school, and, uh, I'm oh, saying because at home, yeah, because oh, sure. you know, kind of my belief is when you're trapped in a situation that you can't escape from, that's uncomfortable, which it sounds like your mm-hmm. family was. Um, that's that's when we do our our biggest oh yeah checking out but i'm asking for like a, an ex- do you remember like an example of- i don't have anything specific i remember though that i spent a lot of time in my head you know and they, they would make comments like oh she's so creative she's going to be a writer she's going to you know do something great and creative but it, i was just trying to get away really is all it was i had a great a whole, a whole system of imagination and play and talk about it. I thought I was a princess for a long time, a really long time. And I remember distinctly going and I thought I looked a certain way. And I guess I don't know if I just didn't pay attention when I looked in the mirror. I remember the first time I, I remember looking in my mom's mirror and looking at myself going, that's not me. Who is that? I'm supposed to be wearing a long gown and have long, blonde, sparkly hair. I do not know who this child is who's looking at me in the mirror. Wow. <laughs> I actually thought I, I was an entirely different person. Wow. Yeah. So I, I don't know that I've ever told anyone about that. What <laughs> a trip. Yeah. I remember being slightly disappointed because I didn't look like the girl I was in my head. Who wouldn't be disappointed to find out they weren't a princess? <laughs> Well, you know, now I wouldn't be disappointed, (laughs) but at the time, that was a really big deal. I guess I thought I looked like the girl, the little drawings in the coloring books, and I I probably thought I looked like Sleeping Beauty from Disney and and that kind of thing, but I really had a completely different image of who I was because I was constantly in my head and being someone else and play acting a different life. You know, so like Barbies for me were a big deal, Matchbox cars, you know, anything, any kind of toy that could take me out of who I was and where I was. Did you interact with other kids your age? Yeah, actually, I was really lucky. There were a bunch of little girls in my neighborhood, and we were all best friends. And That probably helped you in so yeah. many ways. Yeah. Yeah, I found out later that one of them um, was molested by her, her stepfather. And half the time when we would go over to ask her to play, and he'd be like, she can't come out right now, was when he was raping her, basically. You know, that great neighborhood. I don't know why I, I thought don't think, I, would, I, I would just I, add that. I, you know, I don't think there's a neighborhood where that doesn't happen. No, I, really I don't, don't either. It's just we had, we had, I mean, you've, you've seen Lyle. It's like the typical, it looks like the Brady Bunch setting, you know, mm. it's, and my family on the outside looked like the perfect little happy family. You know, mom stays home and dad goes to work and, you know, the, the typical happy family of the seventies the and eighties. I didn't even know what divorce was until I got to junior high school, I think. And how did you know, did she tell you that that's what her stepfather did? Yeah, eventually. We, Cause we didn't know early on, but later, you know, after, after she had told an adult and after everything kind of came out, then we sat and talked about it one day, but otherwise we didn't. We how had how no old idea. were you when you talked about it? Oh, maybe 12, 13-ish, I think. Maybe, maybe it was older than that. I'm not quite sure. Did he go to jail? No, no, no. I remember she told me they went to family counseling and 
they stayed married for a little while and then eventually her mom divorced him i think i don't remember i'm i've lost a lot of details i just that's a that's a really big thing from that time because i remember my father you know had made sexual comments to me about my body and my my an old family friend had done that to me to all of the women in our family and so that seems to be a recurring theme in that neighborhood which is so creepy <laughs> yeah it's i think so many adults may think their intentions are good may think they're mm-hmm. complimenting a child but no child really wants an adult scanning them no no the big memory that that I was working on that brought me back to therapy this time was I was having a lot of issues with um, men looking at me and making me feel creeped out. And I would actually have to hide behind behind Jody and he's awesome. He would Jody's her husband. Yeah, he would he would actually get in front of me and he'd be like, what do you want me to do? Where am I going? Where am I standing? And I'd be like, just stand right there (laughs) because that guy's creeping me out. And my creep, you know, discerner is pretty high. (laughs) So if anyone's creep meter. Yeah, my creep meter. It's pretty good. Pretty honed. So if anyone's slightly weird to me, I it, ding, 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 it goes off pretty, pretty loud in my head. And I, it's not so bad now because I've been to therapy, but I would have to actually physically put someone or something or distance between me and the person setting that off. So, so that's part of the reason I went back to therapy in June. Um, and uh, uh, what was I talking about? Ah, my, the first like really traumatic memory where we did EMDR about it and kind of had to take away some of the the shock and the pain with it is me walking up the you remember how our parents were our were our dinner bells and they'd go out to the front door and go stay stay you know and that was my call to dinner um my dad had done that once and I was coming up the yard and he was standing in the door kind of in this hyper masculinized posture like taking up the whole door frame and um and as I was walking up, I couldn't have been more than like eight, maybe nine. And he, he said, woo, look at those curves. And he kind of looked me up and down. And I just felt myself shrinking inside myself because who does that to an eight or nine year old child? You know, and, and that was a big deal. And that was the year that he, he also started talking about my legs and how I was getting more curves and, ooh, it's getting time. So the young girls should be shaving their legs. And he was just like everything it was just super uncomfortable. And he probably thought he was being the cool dad. Probably, but it was also just disgusting. You know, it was disgusting because he did the same thing to, uh, like, he would look at my girlfriends like that, too. And so I didn't want my girlfriends coming over. And the thing is, at eight years old, I mean, think about how little that is. You know, now yeah. in my mind, because I work with girls who are nine to 12 years old. Saying that sometimes. to a girl who's 16, 17. Yeah. It, but at least they have even curves 18. then. Yeah. You know, but like an yeah, eight-year-old I mean, girl, it's, there are it's no absurd to say it. Too. Inappropriate at the other ages. Yeah. It, and then you know, my well, father. Yeah. Wow. I'm really sorry that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That you had so. to, that you had to experience that. Um, so talk Talk about the feelings you talked about wanting to hide, wanting to to shrink. Um, the feeling that I that I would get when when my mom drank me in with her eyes was numbness. Mm-hmm. I would just feel it was almost like I would almost like I would leave my body. Not like mm-hmm. when you leave your body and you're watching yourself from above, but it would be like I would just. 
I just, I don't know. I don't know how to say it. It was, it was just like I would yeah. just disappear. And yeah. It's like my, my mind, I would just kind of blank myself out. I guess I would just think about something else. Mm-hmm. I, because with a parent who's manipulative and inappropriate and has the power over you, um, you, you can't take on that. You can't take them on. Right. You can't go. That's inappropriate. Well, and also if they're <laughs> that, alcoholic, that feels... you know, it's there, you know, then they pull out the murder card. Yeah. Well, I'm just trying to be nice to you. This is your fault that I'm giving you attention. Yeah. Exactly. I'm building your self-esteem. Yeah, exactly. I'm just trying to tell you you're pretty. Why don't you just say I'm pretty then? You know, fascinating concept. But um, I actually still can distinctly remember how it feels kind of tingly. Honestly, almost as if... Um, but not a good tingly. No, like a hyper-awareness tingly. And then, like I said, kind of curling into myself. If there's some way I could curl my body and so that my back were somehow curled around the front. So you'd be like a taco? Yeah, exactly. A okay. human taco kind of curled around and stuff on the inside kind of visible, not really, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it's just I didn't I didn't want to be visible. I didn't want to be seen, and that kind of affected you, you me for the rest of my life. You also shared, and, and to this day, uh, although I don't have contact with her anymore, but the last time I visited her, um, I lock the door when I use the bathroom uh, in my mom's place because I don't. I feel like she's going to like she's going to barge in. Mm-hmm. It's just a feeling of yeah of of yeah yeah. I, just, I always felt like that with my dad too. And there were a couple times where I remember my mom actually knocked on the door and said, "Your dad really needs to go to the bathroom, so he's going to come in." And I remember we had one of those those shower doors that with the sliding lovely doors and it was frosted yeah glass. and it was frosted but it was that wavy glass mm-hmm. so you could see outlines and i remember i was old enough so that if i were standing up he would see my outline and i was mortified by that so i would sink down to the bottom of the tub and like lay in the tub so that he couldn't see any part of me even through the wavy glass and um yeah it, it i was just mortified because he could have waited. He always could have waited. and But he had to be in the bathroom when I was in the bathroom. And that's actually one of the things that has carried on throughout. And poor Jody has had to deal with this a couple times or more where he has come upon me quickly when I'm changing. You know, he's he's just coming into the room or whatever. And we never close doors in our house. So he'll come in and I'm like, yeah, and I have a panic feeling like I have to hurriedly dress myself because he's he's startling me and I'm not... I'm not covered. And that's a terrible thing to have to feel like with your husband, you know, but he's he's a trooper. He's dealt with it. And I've heard him coming up the stairs before and shouted down, don't come up. I'm not dressed, which is ridiculous. Wow. Yeah, it's not so much now, but, you know, over the over the last uh, 11 years that we've been together, that's what's what's the fear in your brain at that moment? He's going to see me. And it's basically my dad. And he's going to see me with no shirt on, and that's he's going my to have worst. he's going to have the power. Yeah, exactly. And it's my worst nightmare. You know, if my dad had ever actually seen me naked, I don't know that I would have recovered. To be honest, I, I that's beyond my imagination right now. Actually, I'd never thought about that before. I'd never followed through the thought all the way. <laughs> I've always just been like, I need to cover up. You know, get some clothes on and not be seen. Do you feel like? 
it's affected your sexuality and your um, ability to be intimate? At times, yeah. Not consistently. You know, I'm really lucky because I... He sounds like I a pretty somehow, patient, gentle guy. Yeah, yeah. And I somehow had a survival thing, you know, and I somehow knew I was going to be okay. And so, like, when I first met Jody, I I was unstoppable. I was training for my first marathon. I had my first real first-time um, full-time teaching gig at a, at a real high school instead of just tutoring and doing stuff on the side. And, and I felt great. And I knew I was going to conquer the world. And And I feel like that year I did. And it's funny because then it's right after that that my dad died. <laughs> Do you have problems being still and not doing, not having projects, not having a full schedule? Not anymore. No, mm. now I love it. I love it. If I could just, you know, do nothing and get paid, it'd be a pretty sweet gig for That's me. That's how you you distracted yourself previously was you would just stay busy. Yeah, I was constantly doing things and I had a hard time saying no, the typical trying to fill my life with, with a whatever so that I didn't have to sit down and actually think. But I started doing yoga in, what, May, May or June, and, um, you know, started paying attention to what's going on in my body. And some some of that is also the reason I wanted to go to therapy is because I realized how much of my memory and how much pain is locked up in my body. And, you know, like hip flexors, super tight all the time because I was always in escape mode ready to you know you have to be ready to go so your muscles in your hips and your and the front of your legs have to always be tense and so i had been holding on to tension in certain parts of my body for so long that i didn't know what it felt like to not have tension there and you know doing yoga and doing work with my therapist has made a huge difference in that i would imagine too that that helped you be more attuned to what your body was telling you in certain situations so you could learn what your triggers were Mm -hmm. and and for me that's what led me to finally realizing what my feelings were around my mom because I wouldn't allow myself to think those thoughts Mm -hmm. but when my body would tense up and I would want to cover my genitals and I would want to lock the door and I would feel dead when I hugged her and I would feel a knot in my stomach when her name would come up on a call waiting um I had learned to listen to my body, and I was like, wow, these are some pretty serious signals. This, It can't all be me right. just being selfish and a bad son. Yeah. When is the last time you, st- you talked to your mom? Um, May or April or May of uh, 2012. So does she still contact you? We tried doing letters. I said, you know, let's, let's, let's try doing this but i don't want to talk about the past because she 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 can't she has trouble owning things yeah and i'm not looking (laughs) i'm not looking for an apology from her Mm -hmm. and i i just don't want i just want her to respect the boundaries that i try to set today and one of the boundaries was i don't want to talk about the past Mm -hmm. um the stuff that the issues that I have with you, with her. I didn't get into specifics. I just said, you know, when I cut contact the original time, I said some painful um, memories are coming up. I don't hate you. I'm not mad at you. I'm just exhausted by our relationship and I need a break. And then when I wrote her, I said, um, you know, it's been a year or whatever and you know, I'd like to try 
writing because that feels like it's safe. And um, But I don't want to talk about the stuff that I mentioned when I left that message for you. And by her second letter, she was trying to say what she thought was causing me harm, <laughs> saying, you know, I remember this cousin babysat you, and he comes from a physically abusive family. You know, maybe that was something. Right. And then another one said that, basically said that my depression is is my attitude mm -hmm. is what causes my depression <laughs> and that was the that was the final That's nail charming. and so i just didn't write back cuz i yeah. was like she doesn't i don't owe her yeah i don't owe her a letter back i yeah. asked for a boundary, boundary to be respected and she's not going to change and it would make me crazy to try to get her yeah. to change but it makes me very sad yeah that i had to cut her uh, out of my life and it makes me sad that there's a chance that she might not know mm -hmm. the reasons why, but on a certain level, I think she's she's got to know. She has some, to know. Some of the stuff she did was just really creepy. Yeah. You know, well, does... my mom said that she never knew that all the abuse, like my father calling me names and, you know, him being so gross with me. She had no idea what was going on. I, I was like, where were you living? Where were you living? Because the walls were like paper mache. You could hear everything. Would you could hear someone fart in the next room. It was ridiculous. What would your dad say to you? Um, he was hypercritical of me. Um, if he was of my brother, I don't remember, because my whole life I was compared to my brother. <laughs> he was the superstar, and he was going places. And Is he older? You know, yeah. And um, How much? Uh, two and a half years. Yeah. And um, Did you guys get along? That's another thing that came up. <laughs> um I wanted to, and I thought we did, but now that I'm looking back, I don't, I don't really think we did because everything was on his terms and me trying so hard to please him and to be his buddy and, you know, to try to ingratiate myself with him. And it's so hard for kids that are raised with no role model that are raised by narcissists, uh, you know, their needs aren't being met and, and they try to fulfill their needs in whatever way they can. And it's mm -hmm. so rarely... Yeah. anything that's that's healthy and right. it, so often that that older sibling winds up taking all of their sadness and their rage out on a younger sibling and the younger sibling has no idea yeah. that it's really filtering down from the parents inability to parent yeah. yeah i think what was happening with him too was he really was he was the high school star he was that guy that everybody you know he did everything he was in band he was in sports he was you know, he was good at everything he did he was smart all of that stuff and, you know, looking back at me now, I know I just don't fit into a tr traditional type of learning system. You know, my master's degree is experiential education, which is a different way of looking at education. It's all student-centered. Everything is project-based, using scientific method type stuff for no matter what the subject is. That's what I'm good at. So I was okay at school. I was really good at sports and all that as well, but... You know, I wasn't like him, and I was never going to be popular because I was too fucked up. And uh, so looking back, I know now that that he actually, he was talking shit about me at school, and everyone called me Little Reynolds because I was, you know, the superstar's little little sister. And, you know, there were times that I was seriously bullied, and I thought some kids were going to beat me up, and he was there, and he just kind of saw me and kept walking, which I don't blame him for. That's what you do when you're a kid. But... But at the same time, 
It hurts. Yeah, yeah. It hurts. Yeah, and I don't feel resentment towards him at this point. At this point, I just really feel sorry for him. But when I look back and getting, you know, talking about getting along with him, it's it's tricky because I don't. I thought we did, but now looking back, I'm pretty sure we didn't. And it because everything was on his terms, and I just really needed someone to be on my side. So nobody really saw you. Nobody really saw little Stacy. No, it's really funny because that's something that was a really big turning point in therapy for me. This this last time I was there because we were talking about how there was not one person in my life that reached out to me that knew what was going on because you know when you're when you grow up with an alcoholic or some crazy person that everything on the surface looks good and you learn how to go through life and and you don't talk about it and you don't address it with anybody it's normal and that's the other thing is you don't know that life is supposed to be some other way you don't yeah and And it's so, so maddening when you find out it is i know i know you're like oh my god these people live when I would go to people's houses later on in life. I was like, they all like each other. What is going on they here? They laugh. People love each other in this family, and I don't know how to act here. Yeah, it was kind of funny, but um, it, it was kind of a thing that there was not one single person in my life that saw me, knew what was going on, helped me, reached out to me. Not one single person, and she was saying it in a in a oh my god you're so resilient you got out of that kind of a way. But it also was really good for me because I realized that I absolutely so all this time I've been feeling like everything was my fault and I was just a terrible child. I knew I was going to hell by the time I was eight because I knew I was such a bad person, and uh, because of the things that your parents because because, yeah things were my fault even at like six seven eight years you know that that tiny of course I believe them they're my parents you know. But um, it was good for me to realize that it wasn't my fault. I was absolutely by myself surviving, you know, somehow magically and somehow believing that there, there was something better out there. You know, and maybe I'm retroactively adding that thought in. But there was something in me that that got out, you know, and I'm really the only person in my family who has escaped any of that shit. That's healed. Yeah. Yeah. Very much so. What did it feel like the first time you felt seen? and heard was it in therapy um i had one teacher in fifth grade who made me feel good about myself and that's the only time what did they say back then she just saw me and she she admired the fact that i was reading books way advanced past what i should be reading she paired me up with i was friends with the the non-white people in my school for some reason all the time even though my dad was like stupendously racist um your dad was a charmer. He was fantastic. And what's really funny is everyone thought he was great. You know how that is. Everyone on the outside, oh my God, your dad is so cool. And in the back of my mind, I was always like, my God, you should come live with this fucker for 24 hours. I would love That's it if you saw how I feel how he about really my is. mom. You know, narcissists are so charming. Oh my God. Everybody they're else so thinks they're great. Yeah. He was on the, like, not the parent teacher association, but some kind of, um, I can't remember what it was. There was some kind of sports organization, like the parents would raise money for uniforms and and like sell the concessions and things like that. And everybody just loved him. He was president. And I thought, if that fucker shows up to another game of mine and yells at me about a fucking sport he doesn't know anything about, I'm going to fucking knife him. You know? I, but that's how he was. He would like scream and shout at me. Volleyball. He'd never played volleyball. He didn't know the rules. He knew nothing about it. And he'd be out there, you need to hit the ball. And I was like, wrong kind of set for hitting that. And I'd be on the court, you know, didn't butt fuck up in the stands shouting at me about shit he knows nothing about. Have you ever found, this has been one of the hardest things for me to accept 
is that I have many of the qualities of my mom and dad, the the bad qualities. What are the qualities Mm -hmm. that you struggle with in yourself that you feel like you that are either there genetically or you inherited, you know, through the the role, role modeling of your of your parents? Hypercriticism. You know, if you grow up in that in a negative attitude, it's taken me a really long time to learn balance and to be content and to realize that I don't have to be pissed off about everything. And the hypercritical stuff, oof. I'm still, I'm so mean to Jody sometimes. At least I know I am. There's, that's the redeeming thing in my head is I hear myself when I'm doing it. And I can pull myself out and go, that was really an asshole thing to say. I'm, I'm really sorry. That's like, but I'm still angry. <laughs> that's like 90% of recovery. Yeah. Is, and the healing is you catch yourself. Yeah. You may still have those voices in your head for the rest of your life that's like, oh, God, not this fucker. Oh, you're going to let that happen? Don't you yeah. always feel like it's the asshole sitting at the back of the town hall committee that wins out in your thoughts? Because it's really, it's constantly town hall committee and there's like, la, 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 I think we should plant flowers. And there's that guy going, fuck them all, fuck them all. And that's the guy who always wins. And then the one who has no filter, he always wins in my head. And it's always a he for some reason. <laughs> it's usually whichever one is meanest to me yeah. is the one is the one that, that, that wins. Yeah. The, the one that... Um, debases and degrades and minimizes me yeah that that tells me it's my my fault Mm -hmm. that's the easiest place um that's been one of the struggles of doing the podcast but it's been good because it's given me it's kind of like exercises to work on when people write emails that are critical um a lot of times uh it will be very triggering to me, if it's something that that is similar to what the negative voice in my head says, yeah, there are other critical ones that I'll get that are, especially if they're written diplomatically and with love, that I am like, you know, they're absolutely right, mm-hmm. and I'll write them back and say thank you. That's a great point. I'll try right. to remember that next time, or thank you for opening my mind to that. For instance, um, uh, I was pretty uninformed about the transgender community when I started doing this this podcast. Mm-hmm. Still am to a, a large degree, but I've learned a lot. And the uh, um, listeners have really helped me um, kind of expand my knowledge and empathy towards what the, what they go through. Um, but I, you know, I got a couple of emails that were that were hard to read because mm-hmm. it. Just showed me how little I knew around that, but I knew that they were coming from a good place, right? And and I was happy in the long run for them. Whereas if I get an email from somebody um, that's critical about something else, it could send me into a tailspin for for, Don't for you two feel like days. Your, your head's just going to explode. Like the pressure, it's. Ah, I feel it in my hits in my button. gut. If somebody calls me creepy, um, because having been sexualized as a kid, I then became hypersexual. Yeah, and so I always felt like a pervert. You know, from fourth grade on, I just remember. That's a great way to live too. <laughs> I just remember feeling like nobody thinks about sex as much as as I do. Well, just and, so you know, they probably didn't. Just kidding. <laughs> I don't think they did. I'm, I'm sure some did, but... I didn't in fourth grade. <laughs> yeah. I did in first grade. Wow. In first grade, I just remember being obsessed with um, 
you know, want, wanting to, to see girls naked. And that so that feeling was kind of burned in into, into my soul at a very early age that I was that I was different. So if somebody is filtering the show through their own thing, like if they think we're talking about sex too much on the podcast or, um, you know, talking about molestation or incest or uh, something that I'm, I'm passionate in, in talking about, because it not only do I think it's often misunderstood, but it's something that has affected me very deeply personally i read that email it slices right through me because i think oh my god yeah i'm a terrible person and i can't see it so it's the combination of um bad at the podcast and i'm grossing people out yeah and it is I feel it's almost like I feel a hot flash go through my body and I almost feel sick to my stomach. Yeah. And uh and I heard somebody say that in the forum once about me. Really? And said that I felt sick to my stomach when he asked that question or he said he I, said you know, something. I have to say as someone who's been over sexualized as a child, I have never had that reaction on this show. Like listening and I've been listening yeah. for a long time. So that's interesting to me. That's someone's complete different Something's going on with them, I think. You know, and I eventually did get to that place, but it's made me very hyper aware when yeah. this, when the subject of you know um, sexuality and um, especially with with female guests, um, because it can be triggering sometimes when I'm mm-hmm. when I'm talking about the 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 subject. Because um, there's a lot of shit that gets mixed up, a lot of stuff that gets rewired, and. Um, it can be really confusing to talk about. Do you do you have that experience sometimes when you're talking about sex, sexuality, or is it just kind of you shut down? You just don't want to talk My about it or deal with it. My issue is I'm super feminist, and having been, do you have a cape? I do actually, and the underwear and everything. Is it bedazzled? It's bedazzled. Oh my god, you're the only other person who I know has ever said, oh my God, is that bedazzled? Because I would love to have one of those things just to bedazzle stupid shit for no reason. Like I would bedazzle my my water bottle. I would bedazzle my dogs because that's awesome. Collars. I want one of those things. I don't know why. Great creation. But anyway, I'm like, not the angry Nazi feminist and all that kind of stuff, but I'm, I'm really, really, really like women's issues, social justice. It's a really, really important cause or clause, cause, (laughs) a clause surrounded by commas. That's, um, that's really important to me. And so when I hear, actually, this just happened. I forgot about this. Um, I work for, for Lyft, the people who drive with the pink mustaches on the car, Mm -hmm. give people rides, ride sharing kind of thing. In one of our forums, some I was joking about, or no, I wasn't joking. I'm starting to, my brain's going much faster than my mouth can keep up right now. Sure. <laughs> and so I was writing, there's a mustache run, which is, um, it's a race for, I can't remember what it's for now. Mustache run half marathon. I was um, in the forum and I've been trying to get people to, to run this thing with me. Not the half, because most people don't want to run a half marathon. Get it. So this one guy decided he would say, so are you going to run wearing more than the than just the mustache, I hope? And I just was like, what? I don't even know this guy. I met him maybe once. And, you know, he's just one of those good old boys who is part of the good old boy chain and totally fine with me. I don't expect him to understand feminism. I don't expect him to understand his own privilege. I don't, you know, totally I cool. I don't understand what he was saying. What was he? Like, am I going to run naked and just wear the oh. mustache? 
Really? Are you going to you know, make sure you wear more than the mustache kind of thing? And I was just like, what? what? And I felt the burning and I felt panic for a moment there. I thank God for therapy because I was able to step back and go, okay, he's super uneducated. So I just decided I'm going to write what I feel. And I said, please don't make comments like that about or to me. I find them really offensive and very creepy. And that exploded the whole, <laughs> the whole form because people in Minnesota are not used to people being direct, you know, and so that, that kind of set off. Oh my God, what happened? Who, did, who, who was, oh my God, someone was offended. I don't even know what's going on. And, and so he has, you know, kind of followed up, but he's never even addressed me directly. He's talked to Jody, you know, he's messaged Jody and all this kind of stuff. And, but yeah, I get that reaction and I, I had a burning, I was like, panic for just one moment and you know, had my old reaction before the EMDR stuff. And then I, I thank God. When shit triggers you, it's so, it's, it's like scary. a jolt of electricity. It's like yes. a jolt of electricity. I think you're the only person who have ever, you know, cause I don't know a lot of people who have PTSD type stuff and it's really hard to explain, but that's exactly what it is. And you're and fight or flight is, is frightening and, or shutdown, whichever one yeah. it is you go into, it's frightening because you just, deer in headlights what are you going to do and, and it's all just emotional yeah and then such intense emotions come up yeah. afterwards yeah you know so i i you know got on the phone called some people texted some friends and said can you look at this is it just me am i taking this wrong i might be misinterpreting blah, blah, blah. you know going crazy of course but i immediately tried to you know do the right thing which is great because I never used to be before I would have like slammed him and just wrote the most obnoxious shit ever and made him feel like the world's biggest asshole and then been proud of myself and then of course beat myself up for the next two years <laughs> because I'm an asshole who did that online and everybody hates me now. But you would be accomplishing a lot emotionally. That yeah. would be like running an emotional marathon. Exactly. And then carrying it for the next couple of years and having anxiety related reactions to that. Yeah, that's awesome. So, you know, I, I still get triggered and I still have that that same shit happening all the time. It's so frustrating. And it's I'm, you really know, frustrating. I don't feel like there's gonna come a point when it's okay. I'm I'm learning that now because I still I still have that mindset of once I do this thing, then it'll be better. And I still get stuck in that, well, if I keep doing A, B, and C, then D won't happen anymore. And that's not gonna oh, that's yeah, not that's how it works. Yeah, that's that's crazy. Yeah, exactly. Thank you very much. You know, in, PhD. In, in, <laughs> in my mind, it's like my goal is to just find ways that still protect my boundaries, but my response is isn't any more over the line than it than it needs to be. That is diplomatic and, if necessary, loving. Mm -hmm. If I can be loving and compassionate, but firm. Yeah. Um, compassionate towards others, not at the expense of compassion for myself. Right. That's that's what I aim for. Yeah. But it's it's hard when you're in that moment because yeah. it's like it's like you're being you're being tasered and someone's <laughs> and they're going uh, that wasn't very polite the way you exactly. wiggled, you wiggled around <laughs> on the floor. God, and she made a mess. She peed yeah. on my floor. What the hell? God. <laughs> Yeah, it's just really funny, though, because I, you know, I I welcome the challenges. I really do. And I'm that dork who's grateful for alcoholism, and I'm grateful. I was I was so glad to go to rehab. I was like, let's start the healing. What do I do? Am I in a group? Where do I need to go? I, I, I was such a I spaz. love when I meet people like you. Yeah. I love it when I... Really? Oh, oh I God. do. When I meet people that are excited about getting sober, um, 
I just, it just. Well, like, weren't you, when you hit, I don't know how bad your bottom was, but when you hit there, didn't you understand that you were going to die or Mm -hmm. something? Yeah. And I personally was okay. I was like, you know what? It would be okay if I died. Oh, yeah. And I didn't realize I was suicidal because I didn't understand that just because you don't want to go, like, put a needle in your arm or you don't want to take a bottle of, of pills that you're still suicidal if you think if you ran off the road. It'd be okay. And, and yeah, and died, that would be okay. They had to teach me that that was suicidal. I was like, no, I just don't always want to be alive. Right. <laughs> I remember, yeah. well, that's what I loved about flying was there was a, there was a chance I could die and I wouldn't, and wouldn't have to do anything. Fault. And I wouldn't have, have to do anything and yep. nobody would have shame yeah. about it. No one would be like, oh, poor yeah. Paul, he killed himself. Yeah. Yeah. I was I, sad for myself too because I was like, I don't think anyone would even notice if I was gone. Nobody likes me. Oh, the self-pity of the untreated yeah. alcoholic. I'm in the basement and I'm drinking. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that drinking towards the end is so lonely. <laughs> it's so yeah. lonely. Like the first hour and a half of my buzz towards the end was still awesome. But like yeah. three hours into it was just the saddest. Because there's no buzz. There's nothing and you're still chasing it. Yeah. Oh, that's sad. Talk about the loneliness of the of the alcoholic towards the oh, end. Oh, boy. Oh boy. Um I really liked isolating. If and I still do, to be honest. Part of that I'm realizing is now that I get older, I'm becoming more introverted and I'm okay with that part of it. But I can tell when I just want to retreat, I don't want to think about what's going on. I don't want to I don't want to go out and run, which is normally a joy for me. Um I don't want to walk the dogs, which is also a joy for me. I don't even want to go find one of the cats and take a nap. I just want everybody to leave me alone. And it's of my own doing. And that's the thing that scared me is um I was so so lonely, but I couldn't bear being around people and it hurt. Being around people it was exhausting. It still is sometimes just because I think my introversion is growing. I don't think it's as unhealthy now <laughs> as it was. And people can be exhausting. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm, I used to be one of those people, like, super extroverted. I got energy off of people. I'd go to a, a club and dance, and woo, and I'd want to stay up all night with people. Now, the very thought of being around that many people, I'm already tired. You know, I'm good at small gatherings and that kind of thing, and I still get a lot of energy. And I get a lot of energy when I'm teaching, so it's really good. Oh my God, you and I are so alike. It's oh unbelievable. <laughs> Truly, it is Wait, unbelievable. Wait, when is your birthday? Because this will be funny. I, I, I want to tell you, too, that about nine times I have re resisted saying me too. Really? <laughs> I, I, and I've said it nine times already. And I'd like to think I'm so unique. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry to let you down, but um, it's unbelievable how, and I think, A, because we're both alcoholics, and B, I think because yeah, yeah. we're both sexualized by a, a parent, mm -hmm. Um there was this, I took this class uh, about education, about, it's too, it's too long to go into it, but it was, yeah, but it yeah. was, about, it was about rape in, in, in prison. Mm -hmm. And um, they were talking about the signs to look for, to how you know when somebody has been um, raped or experienced sexual trauma. Mm -hmm. And every single one of the things that they listed are things that I experience Ugh. and that I feel. And it it was comforting, but it was also really um, sad. Yeah. I had a friend when I lived in San Antonio for a little while, and he would, he would say about things like that. It was frightening, yet exciting. <laughs> <laughs> 
which is how I feel a lot about a lot of things, actually. <laughs> but but I re- could see, I could totally see that. I the, could the reason understand. I bring it up is because almost all of the things that you are sharing are things that are the results of sexual abuse. Really? Yes. I did not know that. Isolating, uh, depression, um, uh, addiction. Um, uh, there's like three or four others yeah. that you that. Um, and and the the other thing that children share who haven't been sexually abused but who have a very narcissistic parent share a lot of those same mm-hmm. those same ones double whammy for me yeah well because Big the bucks, abuser, no whammy actually yeah because the that. abuser is a narcissist yeah you know and yeah. inherently that's yeah and i think the hardest thing is oh. for us to look at the narcissism within ourselves oh that's, yeah that's that's been a a, a really hard those are the, the truths that are hardest to oh to, yeah my ego at. is big enough to fill you know china <laughs> yeah. and i know that about myself so how do you what works for you to 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 bring your your ego down i laugh at myself a lot because i know i'm just a huge asshole and in the end of you know end of the world i'm i'm gonna count for you know i'd like to think that i make a difference in the world i want to change the world for girls and women and make it better um and hopefully i can do you know something one little girl at a time maybe but i know that i am one speck of sand and i i'm not as important as i think i am i think growing older is really a large part of that for me is you know i'm so happy to be in my 40s i'm i'm looking forward to 50 and on i've heard for women that's a really great time of life i mean my 30s were fantastic even though you know i went to the bottom of alcoholism for me which as they say was a high bottom which to me sounds really um like when people talk about the positions in gay relationships, that a high bottom is what I... It sounds funny to me. I have a lot of gay friends. I'm not trying to yeah. be insulting. But, um, a high bottom does have to involve an arched back. Exactly. Yes. And I'm not that flexible, but yoga's yeah. helping. Um, but about having a, a, a high bottom? Uh, I didn't have to get go really, really low. And, you know, everything in my 30s was really overall great. And so I've been really lucky that everything's getting better as I get older. And so I'm just gaining perspective. You know, I would never go back to my 20s. I hated that time of my life. I It was total chaos for me. I was a born-again Christian for a while, which I, which I always wonder when you're not a born-again Christian anymore, does that mean you're dead again? You're unborn? What exactly happens? You know, do you have to, like, go back into the womb? You're just not as annoying to other people. Right. Yeah. I do remember at one point. There's a, there's a few born again Christians that aren't annoying, but so no, many not of, at all. So I many have of great them friends. are. So many. Uh, I was are, one of those. Yeah. I was one of those. I had a shirt that said um, "Jesus, the choice of the next generation" instead of Pepsi or whatever it was at the time. And um, I have shouted to people across a, a crowded lunchroom, "Hey, did you know that Jesus loves you?" I was that kid. Yeah, that's yeah. so annoying. I know. Yeah. I know. I'm proud of it. It's one of those fine points. It's good in my that you life. can laugh about it, though, and you know, kind of look at that oh, and yeah. not hate yourself about it. Yeah, that's well, really... I was searching. I was really searching. I needed something, and at that point in my life, and for people who believe, I think it's great, and they should. 
and that's their choice. But for me, it was Christianity does not suit me. Just don't force it on me. Don't yeah. try to shove it down my throat. It's too much of, for me personally, it's too much hierarchy, too much patriarchy. I can't, I don't exactly. suit the system. And it's kind of uh, punishing. Yeah. Know, to well, me. it was very punishing to me. I never felt worse about myself yeah. than when I was a born again Christian. I, I knew, once again, I knew I was going to hell. <laughs> I had this epiphany in, in recovery one day when I realized that all my life I'd thought that you know, because I do believe in in God, I just mm-hmm. don't believe in organized religion. I realized, oh, I've always, I never thought that God loved me. I just thought, you know, God or the universe, whatever you want to call it, I just felt like it tolerated me. <laughs> and when I realized that there is love, that's how your parents felt. <laughs> yeah, I suppose. Yeah. No, my parents loved me as as in their own way. I I'm believe kidding. That. I'm totally kidding. Oh, okay. I don't know your parents. Okay. Um, it was, I, I cried so hard, like tears of joy, when I realized that I am loved, that that I'm on a path that has meaning and purpose, and everything I've been through was to make the beautiful life that I have now necessary, to yeah. equip me and train me to yeah. be able to... Um, do do what I do, which brings me so much so much joy, and yeah, it was it was a profound moment. Yeah, I'm personally I kind of lean towards Taoism, Buddhism, and so I don't I don't necessarily know exactly what it is I believe in anymore. Like what entity, what thing? I believe in so many things, though. I believe in nature. I believe in. Um, do you believe in crystal light? Sure. Why not? I believe in Dr. Pepper, and I would like to be a Pepper too because I'm a joiner. <laughs> yeah, I, I I definitely believe in Crystal Light though, and so, the skulls. But, but to, to be serious, <laughs> so uh, it sounds like a, a big part uh, for you is trying to find acceptance where you don't have control. Um, Isn't that kind of the the essence of what Buddhism is about? Is for me, it's more about about balance. And I like the yin yang symbol to me speaks volumes to what it is. Everybody has evil. Everybody has good. Everything has the opposite in it. And it's a constantly shifting reality. Everything in the world depends on the context that you see it in. You know, something that's truly evil is truly evil. But in a certain context, when you look at someone's background, maybe this truly evil thing that they did makes sense. Context is everything to me. And that's why you know, yin yang Taoism, it makes sense because everything is about getting, getting everything back to a harmonious balance that, that is livable. If that makes any sense. I think I'm, that makes perfect sense. To I me. sound like a philosopher, but I'm sure your mom would have some cr- criticisms about it. Oh my it. God. She's such an asshole. <laughs> she, um, what's really funny is she, uh, I, I wrote her an email after that that argument, and it was really good. My therapist thought it was a fantastic email, you know. And she said, if I received an email like that, that's the kind of thing that would make me get on the phone and say, "I want to talk about your feelings. What exactly is going on here?" I, you know, you, there's you no way in hurt. hell your mom would do that. God, no. She likes the status quo. You know, she doesn't want to. She wants to take no part in not taking responsibility because I'm not asking her for that. But just even looking at her role in anything, and she thinks I'm blaming her for things, and, and I've never said, because of you, I, la, 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 la. You know, it's the, this last email was in 
in the form of basically I need to feel safe. And, you know, talking about dad sometimes is going to have to happen because that's part of my painful past. And um, I don't know if you know how critical you are of me. And, and I know you don't mean it to be mean or anything, but but it's one of those things that hurts me. And it's hard for me to stay in touch with you because of that. And she wrote me back <laughs> a letter saying, um, basically, whenever you go to therapy, you become hypercritical of me. Oh my and God. Um, I know I was I, I did a terrible thing by staying married to your father. And um, I can't remember what else it was she said. And at the end, this is the best part. I have a, a box of books that I don't want anymore. Should I bring them up when I come visit you possibly or or what? <laughs> and I was like, well, good, good ending. Way to stick the landing, mom. That was awesome. Like she like she thought I was going to allow her to come to see me after that. You know, hey, this is all your fault again. I know we've already talked about that for the last, oh, 43 years, but it's still so, your fault. So why do you still have contact with her? <laughs> I just cut it off again. Oh, good. Yeah. Good. Yeah. After that letter, I talked to my therapist and that's kind of part of us, us saying, I think we're at a point where we're okay. Because I, I was like, you know what? I don't hate her. I don't miss her. We have no need to be in touch. I don't know what she wants. Like, she doesn't even like me. Why does she want to be in touch with me? If we met on the street, she probably would not like me at all. You know, there's nothing. If she feels this need to have this daughter relationship and stay in touch with me because she's supposed to, that means nothing to me. I, I have no need I have no one in my family left, basically, and that's okay with me. I think there there are narcissistic parents, I think, just see their children as an extension of themselves, like a third arm that they that it's all about a reflection of them. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where the, hy- the hypercriticism comes from, is that I think they're so afraid that somebody is going to judge you and by proxy judge them. And yeah. so they feel like you're this thing that they that they if they can get you to be as presentable and as perfect as they think they can get you to be then they'll be safe yeah and they can relax and she just also i think from living with my dad for so long she just has no idea how critical she is you know i could say something like hey i straightened my hair today something as simple as that how do you like it no i don't like it (laughs) okay well good way to let me down easy you know or i i could say you know, I don't agree with this politician. And she'd be like, well, why? And it would all be this negative staccato voice coming back at me. Like, no matter what it is, you're wrong. I see. So it's not like, because there's nothing wrong with disagreeing or saying, well, you know, I, I preferred your, your hair's nice this way, but I, I think I yeah. like it the other way. That That's would always be, just, no. that would be okay, right? Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, you're supposed to have opinions. Or, or really? I don't like that politician. Well, let's, let's, why don't yeah, what what, what is it about them that you that you like? Because I I kind of think that they're, you know, yeah. such and such. So it's more the manner uh, that she just kind of shuts you down. Yeah, everything is is I'm wrong, and it's exactly what my dad did. Yeah, you know, my dad telling me about sports he knows nothing about. He my father tried to. I've lived in France a couple times, and um, I think the the second time, yeah, Jody and I got engaged in France the second time I lived there. And he had come over to see me, and we came home, and and so I know a lot about France, and I remember specifically after we'd been home, him telling me something about French culture and how they live, and yada yada yada, and I was like trying to explain to him, actually that's that's not true, you know, and, and I studied French as my undergraduate degree, and taught high school French, and 
I'm pretty good. I'm fluent. You know, I've been there enough times that I, I get perks and things when I go because I speak French. And my dad was convinced I was wrong. And that's pretty much everything in my family. You know, you, you could have become a Ph.D., you know, in, in robotics. And they would tell you, no, robots don't work like that. They don't. They don't. That's not the circuitry that they use. Um, no, that's wrong. <laughs> it's, it's okay. So, I'm it's, sleepy it, too. It's so frustrating. <laughs> no, I'm. I'm trying. I was trying to cover up a burp. I had uh, a lot of garlic this morning. Does this room just stink like garlic? No, no, not, okay. not at all. It smells all like right. piss, but that's okay. <laughs> I'm kidding. Well, that's because the second grade you came in here I and know, wet herself. I know. Uh, I'm so ashamed. Is there is there anything else that you'd like to share or or talk about? I feel like I have like a book, but I can't think of anything, of course, right now. Did you want to do any? Did I ask you to do fears or loves? Yeah, I did homework. I brought a folder. You did. Oh my god! <laughs> I'm a teacher, man. I get excited about yeah. this shit. I told Jody this afternoon. I was like, I gotta sit down. I have to write down my loves and fears because I, I. Oh my god! I have homework. But it was good. Let me pull up my paper. I enjoy talking to you. It's always nice when it, when I get to talk to somebody um, that makes me feel less. Um, like I'm alone, like I'm different. I mean, I get that from my support groups, but I I really enjoy it when I get a a, a listener who um I feel like is almost like a, a like a a sibling from another family. Yeah. What is it they say, brother from another mother? Yeah. Yeah, that's a better. That's a better. That's the phrase that, I was looking I, for. You know. Oh, you know, one thing I meant to tell you, this is so funny. I started listening to you when I was in Russia, actually, and I was not supposed to travel yet according to the rules of sobriety. Um, I had gone over there for nine months to do a teaching gig, English as a second language, and I was over there and I didn't have a support group. And I was like, okay, I don't have anyone to talk to. I, you know, I did a good job of building a support network for myself of, of people who are non-drinkers, you know, normal people, healthy people. But I didn't have anyone alcoholic or anyone to talk to and so i found the podcast somehow and i started listening and i was like this is my support group yeah and wow. I, I didn't feel bad then because i wasn't going to group meetings and doing all that kind of stuff good. it was well, so funny I, I take that as the ultimate compliment thank you so hey maybe more people in russia are listening to you i have a monthly donor from russia really dimitri nice hello dimitri that's not a stereotypical name at all. <laughs> It'd be better if it was Vladimir. <laughs> I didn't even get to speak in Spanish or French. That's too bad. You speak three languages? And a tiny bit of Russian, but I suck at it. Oh, okay. Yeah. But yeah, Spanish, uh, French, and English, I guess, is... I guess you could call that speaking a language, right? English? Yeah. Not according to your mom. You butcher yeah. it. I know. Asshole. Um, I have fears. Okay. Fears first. Let's do some fears, yeah. All right. Um, I'm afraid I will be in serious physical pain for the rest of my life. And I say that because I have a lot of small aches and pains that just seem to have come out of nowhere. And I don't know what the fuck's going on. I'm afraid I'll never be able to um, eat the way I want to eat without it making me fat um, and tired when I play hockey. You're on the pizza diet, too, aren't you? All pizza all the time. Uh, Extra cheese. I, I do love I do love pizza, but <laughs> I, I've been having to not eat any to to try to to try to lose weight. But I'm actually ahead. doing a cleanse when I go home. Are you? Yeah, just because I wanna I wanna know what it feels like to have all the sugar, but I get to eat. I'm not doing more I can't right. eat because that's insane. I don't know how, how do people do juice detoxes. I don't know without killing someone. 
I have no idea. I, I would hurt myself for someone else. Um, I am afraid I will never be happy with where I live, no matter where it is, because I tend to, after like three years, I tend to get a little antsy and I want to go somewhere else and I find fault with where I'm living. Minnesota is falling very short of my expectations. <laughs> I'm afraid of, um, I'm afraid of uh, that the next earthquake is going to be gigantic because it's been so long. Ooh, I've only been through one in Santiago. Um, I will never read all the books I want to before I die or read about all the topics I feel like I need to, to know everything I want to know. I definitely have that one. I have so many books backed up on my Kindle. It's, it's not even funny. Do you also read like four at a time? Yes. <laughs> and a lot of them I don't finish. Yeah. A lot of them. I used to always finish books. And Didn't you feel reason, like an obligation? Kind of. Mm-hmm. Kind of. But uh, yeah, I, I, I struggle to do that. Um, I am afraid. I'm afraid that the older I get, the more and more my desire to isolate will increase. I have that too. I didn't write yeah. it down. <laughs> I'm afraid that I will never earn enough money for retirement because the kind of jobs that I have don't really... They're not conducive to earning retirement money. Um, and I will basically work until I die. Also that Jody will die before me so that I'll end up in a like a state facility alone. And I'll be working while everybody else is sitting at, you know, like if they're supposed to be drooling and like wearing depends yeah. and things. You got to get, I'll be out get working. up. Yeah. I got to go dust. And I, I got to <laughs> earn my keep here. I can't afford this because I'll have no retirement money. Uh, I have a fear that somebody is going to do a podcast that is really similar to mine and everybody is going to stop listening to mine and listen to theirs and having put all the energy into this will have been for naught and then i will have no idea what to do with my life i'll bet dimitri will still listen (laughs) i'll bet he will i bet i get home and it says that he's canceled his monthly (laughs) monthly donation (laughs) Um, I'm afraid that my brother will be unable to take care of everything when, that has to get taken care of when my mom dies and that I will have to do it. I think I've, I've shared this one before, but um, I fear that when my mom dies, I will suddenly see the way I should have handled this all along and I will feel tremendous guilt and regret. Oh, that's terrible. Now I'm going to fear that. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> Um, I am afraid of walking op- over um, those open grates and the subway grates and the sidewalks. I yes. hate it. Um, especially if you have heels, I would imagine. I don't wear heels. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Not an issue. Um, I, f- I fear walking over the ones where it's the big metal plate. Yeah. That those too. are always scary because I'm like, I hope this guy welded it well what, or what if it opens? woman. Yeah. Because imagine if that cracks. What I think do you they just made movies about fall that, right? into a big thing of shit? <laughs> And you know it'll be shit, because that's the kind of luck of that people like us have. Of course. I actually know how I'm going to die. It's going to be from Ebola, but it'll be because I'm on safari in some country where it's taken over, and some monkey will throw poo, and it'll hit my eye, and then I'm going to get Ebola and die from that. It's been foreseen. <laughs> I know. Something's terribly wrong with me. It's okay. Um, I have been getting a lot of headaches lately, and I'm really afraid that they're a symptom of something really, really bad. I am afraid... God, I've done so many. I think I've done 500 fears yeah, on this probably. podcast. Yeah, probably. Yeah. The beauty is, is my brain never runs out. 
I'm afraid I'm never going to get back on a sleep schedule that uh, where I get up before one or two in the afternoon. When do you go to sleep? Five, sometimes six. Really? Yeah, sometimes four. But that's really that's good. Curtailing it and get to bed early yeah. for when you're tired. If I get up at noon, I feel like Rocky on the steps. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm really afraid of relapse. I'm afraid of um, how dark it was before I went to rehab and how I knew I couldn't live with alcohol. I couldn't live without alcohol and I didn't know how to live at all. And that scares me to death because I don't know if I I don't know if I have the tools to come back from that again. And I, I probably do, but there's the fear that I will some basically, people don't. Yeah, yeah, I will. I'm afraid I will die in the street then, you know, alone, drunk, because I'm uh, that. I have that fear. I have yeah. that fear too. Yeah. Let's go to some loves. Wait, I have one more. Okay. One more. One more fear. Um, because I'm kind of hot tempered, I'm afraid that I will leave Jody for some stupid shit like um, his snoring, which <laughs> is actually a trigger for me because <laughs> my dad snored. Um, but I'll get so angry that I'll leave, you know, and not come back. And then I'll be too proud to ask him to take me back. And that's, that's an actual serious fear of that's mine. That's deep. Yeah. Yep. Hit me with a love. Um, let's see here. Multigrain Cheerios with whole milk. I love when I start eating healthier and I get to the point where, the healthy food doesn't taste like a terrible disappointment <laughs> where you start to get used to it and it doesn't just feel like torture. Yeah. <laughs> um, I love running even when I also hate it, but I, the moment when I feel like I could run forever, which for, for me is runner's high. I don't know if runner's high or something else, but that for me, that's what runner's high is when I feel like, even if it's only a mile two, when I feel like I could keep going, I think I can run till four. Uh, yeah, I love the feeling when I'm playing hockey and I get a second wind and mm-hmm. I suddenly have more energy in hour two than I did in the first 15 minutes, That's which nice. is bizarre. <laughs> um, I love school and office supplies because I'm a total dork teacher, like a new pack of uniball pens. Oh, I, I hear angels singing. <laughs> it makes me so, this folder. It's a tr- what's it called? trifold folder they have them in europe i found it at a staples i'm so excited (laughs) i bought three i love uh i love the excitement of getting a new computer oh my god that's awesome or a piece of recording gear i just had to uh my the disc on my uh computer at home just finally crapped out and so i bought a um a new imac and um yeah, and I had to buy a new digital interface for it, too, because the old one wouldn't work because my other computer was 10 years old. That's amazing. It lasted that it long. It is completely amazing. Yeah. yeah. That's my dream, to be able to buy technology that lasts 10 years. I don't like having to rebuy. Um, I actually love it when the iTunes Genius recommendations are good, and I actually am turned on to something mm-hmm. different and new. I love um, the Pandora channel. Uh, 60s French pop. Really? I have been listening to it. Uh, and it, it, it's so right on the edge of almost a novelty song. Yeah. And some of them are. Yeah. But it's because you haven't heard them before. Almost every catchy song from the 60s you've heard already. Yeah. But that, that channel, you hear all of these great songs. Um, you know, and I just was, love it. They make me happy. Yeah. 
That reminds me of, um, we have XM radio, which is so exciting. It's like having a grown-up car with XM radio in it. I've been listening to the the French Canadian, like the the French, um, what's it called? French influenced or something like that, Canadian music. And it's really funny because I'm like, I actually understand that. No, actually, it's not. Surprisingly, I thought it would be. And then there's like a country, like French country station. That one's a little too much for me, but it's good. Um, I love pizza pot pie from the Chicago Pizza and Oven Grinder on oh, Clark Avenue. I love that. I think it's 2121 Clark Avenue. If anyone's listening, you should go have a pizza pot pie. Do you ever I'm eat it? Speaking of pot, do you ever eat a pot belly? <laughs> pot belly sandwiches on Lincoln in Chicago? No, I don't think I did. Oh, they, they were one of the first places to, um, at least that I ate at, that um, would put the sandwich in a wood-fired oven and make it really? toasty and crunchy. Yeah, it was long before uh, Quiznos. Yeah. I was an Italian beef person, so any time I, oh, I could get a beef. A Portillo's or yeah. Al's Roast Beef. Oh, the, my well, God. we had a place out in the Burbs that was really good. It's actually where my brother works now. Was it Carms? No. Uh, what was it called? Baroni's. Baroni's? Yeah. B-A-R? Uh-huh. There's O-N-E. A, there's, there's a Baroni's out here. Really? In LA? Yeah. It's, it's less than a mile from here. I mean, It's right down the street. It. I wonder if it's the same people. I don't know. But I, I think I they're from Chicago. I can't believe they would go from Lyle. That's so weird. Yeah. Huh. I'm I'm almost frightened. Small pizza strange. world. Yeah. Uh, whose turn? Uh, probably you. Okay. I love uh, how our little dog, uh, Herbert, when I come to bed, how he, <laughs> how excited he gets to see my wife as if she was gone on a trip for two weeks. Mm-hmm. He jumps all over <laughs> her and licks her face. And um, he's just, he's so excited. Yeah. Um, and it's just ridiculous. That's funny because my next one was dogs too. I love it when the dogs are happy and they tuck their ears back um, and then they go into a big stretch and they make those grunting sounds. Mm-hmm. So they're kind of like, and they're stretching really hard and it's yeah. all just out of joy. Yeah. I love that. I love uh, <laughs> I love when I open the door and they both go uh, tearing out into the backyard and one of them trips. <laughs> <laughs> Our dog did that the other day and she had a big grass stain because she actually yeah. swiped her head across the yard. Um, I love buying new outdoor and camping gear and then actually using it. I love looking out in our backyard and going, oh my God, we have fruit trees in our yard. Oh, I wish we did. Um, I love learning new languages and then becoming actually fluent enough to, to use the language and not sound like a total dick. Uh, I love when I know a phrase in a foreign country and I say it and the person is surprised that a <laughs> foreigner knows it. Awesome. Um, I love doing crossword puzzles, specifically the sun from the Sunday paper. The Minneapolis one is okay. Um, but I love doing the New York times and I can actually complete them sometimes on a Sunday. Yeah. You're a badass. Sometimes I take a week to complete it, but I get it. That's pretty badass. I feel pretty smart. Yeah, you should. Yeah. (laughs) Give me one more and we'll go out. Um, Ah, this is funny because this happened like last week. When Jody brings me coffee in bed because I'm sitting up there reading or doing something. And then later on, he actually brings up the full pot of coffee and the creamer and he gives me a refill. And there's not really enough room in our room to do that. So it's really funny because he's got the coffee and the creamer. He's like, would you like a refresher? A refresher. And That's sweet. Yeah, he's pretty cool. He's a keeper. 
Stacy Reynolds, thank you, uh, thank you so much for uh, for coming and sharing your stuff with us. Thanks for having me. Many, many thanks to Stacy. And as I said, we recorded that about two years ago, and um, she, I, I asked her for an update, and she is um, she's still struggling physically. She has uh, she had a knee replacement surgery, um, but is healed, and um, the aches and pains. Uh, were from this thing she has called spinal stenosis, which is a narrowing of, of the spinal column. So unfortunately, she's not able to run anymore, but um, she's hanging in there, and she's living in Minnesota and still with her husband. And um, yeah, that was really, really, that's uh, just something so nice when you when you talk to somebody and you hear their story and you're like, wow, that is so similar to things that I've been through, I feel so much less alone. Um, before I read some surveys, I want to also remind you, I said this earlier in the in the show, but that um, those two shows coming up um, in Oakland, the uh, July 20th and 21st, um, we'll put a link on the website for it. It's with uh, Glenn Washington, who is the host and producer of uh, NPR's Snap Judgment, and Jamie DeWolf, who is the grandson of L. Ron Hubbard, and both of them were raised in cults. And so I'm really looking forward to interviewing those guys. Um, before I read these surveys, there, if you're um, thinking about supporting the show, there's a couple of different ways you can do it. You can go to our website, mentalpod.com, and you can make either a one-time PayPal donation <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> or my favorite <coughs> of becoming a monthly donor for as little as five bucks a month. It's super easy to fill out and um it it means a lot to me. It helps keep the, the podcast going and um gives us kind of a, a financial uh footing. Um you can also support us non financially by going to um iTunes, writing something nice about us. You can um, spread the word about the podcast through social media. That helps. Uh, oh, and one other financial thing is you can uh, use our Amazon uh, search portal. Just click on our homepage. You'll see a little Amazon uh, logo. And then anything you buy at Amazon uh, on that browse will will get um, some money, a percentage from Amazon. And it doesn't make what you're buying any more expensive. All right, let's get to some surveys. Oh, actually, the first thing I'm going to read is, um, and I had the feeling this was going to happen um, when I was recording the episode last week, but uh, I read a very, very graphic um, survey that this per uh, a person, uh, a woman had filled out, um, and it was... Actually, it wasn't under uh, what sexual fantasies are most powerful to you. It was under what are your darkest thoughts, but they were um, sexual fantasies. And I got an email. I got three emails from people, actually, um, but this is one of them. And she calls herself uh, My Two Cents from Fort Wayne, Indiana. And she writes, Dear Paul, I admire what you're doing here, but I don't agree with everything you say. I also do not think it's okay to air the very specific fantasy of human torture, rape, and murder, as you did in your most recent podcast, with the atmosphere of everything's fine about it. How many listeners hear that and think, well, Paul didn't say anything about right or wrong, and he's always telling everyone they're just fine to have their sick fantasies? 
Uh, sociopathic killers fantasize about doing exactly those kinds of things before they actually do them. How do you know if that was a fantasy or a description of a crime? It's not okay to fantasize about torturing, raping, and killing. It's not, in capitals, okay. I wish you would think about what message some of the fantasies, if that's all they are, that you read, send out to your listeners, and then how that might cause them to act. Well, you know, my first instinct was uh, to completely... Uh, disagree uh, with her um, because it is not my job to tell people what is right and what is wrong. I feel like the purpose of this podcast is to help people feel less alone and if something and to have more compassion for themselves and maybe more compassion for other people around them um, or to set boundaries with other people. Um, but one of the things in reading the shame and secrets surveys is that so many people beat themselves up because they have a sexual fantasy that is amoral. And obviously this one that I read was an extreme example um, of it. And my hope in reading that was that somebody hearing that would say, well, boy, uh, people's fantasies can get pretty dark and pretty extreme. Uh, I guess mine isn't uh, a big deal. That being said, I felt like it was, it wasn't something that maybe should have been read aloud and while I know there's many things in the show that trigger people, I feel like that one, I feel like the drawbacks of reading that one outweighed the benefits of reading it. And for that, I, I think you're, uh, I think you're right, but I don't think I have the power to tell people what is right or what is wrong. And I don't think anybody fantasizing, um, I don't think anybody is going to act on their dark fantasy in real life based on anything that I say, uh, especially because I say all the time, um, any fantasy is okay if it stays a fantasy. If you feel like you are moving towards a place where you, you are becoming more and more engrossed in that fantasy and it's becoming addictive and it's distracting you from your life, then that's something that's serious and you need um, professional help for it. But anyway, I hope that all makes sense. But I just want to say to the people who were bothered by that and wrote into me, I appreciate uh, you sharing your thoughts with me. And I really appreciate the fact that you did it uh, with love and diplomatically. And that means a lot. It means a lot to me. This is a struggle in a sentence. And... <laughs> They're, uh, this person is gender fluid and they call themselves Captain Picard's slow double face palm. I don't even know what that means, but I like it. I think Captain Picard might be a, a Star Trek person about their trichotillomania. Uh, no, I promise all these bumps and scars aren't from some horrifying STD or skin condition. I just spent 20 minutes a day ripping my pubic hair out by hand until I can get the thoughts to stop about being trapped in a straight relationship. 
Can this date with my boyfriend please be over soon so I can sob into a pint of Halo Top watching Carol? That's such a great sentence. Oh my God. That is that is a small poem, that sentence. Thank you. Uh, you have a flair for, for writing. Thank you for that. Um, Rain writes about her food addiction. This handful of pure sugar will make my mother love me. God, it is so good. So good. This is a happy moment from Lucy Bear, and she writes, I had a good moment the other day. I am scared of pretty much everything, and thus very risk-averse. I'm currently writing my MA dissertation, and an opportunity came up to apply to present my research at an event for those in the field. Although I am struggling with my dissertation due to depression manifesting itself in procrastination and perfectionism, for one brief moment I thought, fuck it, and put in my abstract. I don't know yet if I've been chosen to present, but it doesn't really matter. Just putting myself out there, making myself vulnerable, literally saying, I have something to say that is valuable and that others will want to hear. All this is so alien to me that it felt like a huge breakthrough. That is so awesome. God, do I love reading stuff like that. Because that's that's what, at least for me, that's what getting better has looked like, is just millimeter little baby steps. And there's a momentum. You know, there's a momentum to uh, addiction and and getting uh, and staying in untreated mental illness. But there's also a momentum to healing. This is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by Carly, and um, she's in her 20s, raised in a totally chaotic environment. Um, She's never been sexually abused. She's a very abusive uh, mother. Uh, She writes, my mother was always very emotionally abusive and had anger issues. She always yelled at me over things I couldn't control or that had nothing to do with me. She was also sometimes physical, but that's hard to admit because she's my mom and I do love her. The last time was when I was about 16 or 17 and she was angry at me for making cupcakes at about 9 o'clock at night and she slammed my head against our table and the cupcakes went flying. I'd say that's, that's physically somebody who's physically abusive. You know, just because cupcakes are involved doesn't doesn't soften anything. Um like that that would be weird if there was a law that it's not murder if uh there's a bunt cake in the room. Any positive experiences? Yep, exactly. She's my mom and she's sometimes nice. She says she loves me and I love her, but I'm hurt by the way she treats me. I think it's important to look at the way somebody treats you to see what their love is for you. Um, you can say you love people, but it, it's really your actions that that matter. So her darkest thoughts are suicidal. Uh, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I'm a woman, and honestly, I'd like to have sex with another woman. I feel kind of weird about it because my mother said she would, quote, kill me if I ever even liked another girl. So since I'm still afraid of my mother, I'm not sure I can ever have this experience. That is one of the saddest things I've ever read because oh, I don't have to say why. You, you, It's... 
What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? Uh, I'd like to tell my friends and family about my bipolar disorder because I feel like it makes life very difficult for me and I just wish people could understand that. What, if anything, do you wish for? Happiness and love. Have you shared these things with others? I've tried, but my friends find me overwhelming, selfish, and draining. I'm going to take a wild guess, too, that those are things that your mom uh, said to you, said you were. Uh, How do you feel after writing these things down? It seems like a relief because they're concrete and not swirling around in my head. That is one of the things that's so good about journaling um, is it slows them down so we can take a really good look at them. Uh, Is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? I'm not sure that I'm in a good position to give anyone advice. Um, I know that I speak for everybody who just heard me read this and we just want to pull you away from your mom and to find some people that are safe and do want to hear about your bipolar disorder and hear what it is that you're feeling inside who won't be drained or think you're selfish or overwhelming. That really moved me. Thank you for that, Carly. And I, I, I pray that you can choose yourself and, and have some compassion for yourself because um, it's the easiest thing in the world and it's the hardest thing in the world to choose ourselves over a parent who is abusive towards us because that that bond to to them is so genetic and so ingrained in us by society but distancing distancing ourselves from somebody requires so little actual effort it's, it's the emotional part that's so hard, but um, anyway, I'm, I'm going on ad nauseum. This is a happy moment filled out by a guy who calls himself, if only I could play the banjo. And he writes, I want to switch this up and talk about other people being happy while I observed and wondered, how do they do that? I was at a popular folk festival earlier today. I went just because a friend of mine was really into the idea. We arrived and soon saw all kinds of barefoot hippies, quote, letting go and enjoying the scene. They were all shapes, sizes, and ages, seeming uh, to be having a spectacular time. Then there's me all stiff, self-conscious, and ready to leave after 20 minutes. What is it that keeps me from enjoying a day at a lakeside park among some among some really friendly people? Fuck, I hate that I'm always the guy that can't wait to get back home and obsess about how I can never meet anyone that finds me interesting enough to date. I think many of us are shaking our heads and laughing and saying, oh my God, you just described me. Uh, this is just a thought. Join those people in dancing but mock them, imitate them, and do it right to their face. And then say, this is what you look like, stupid hippie. And then do that really stereotypical uh, dance from like episodes of Dragnet in the early 70s. <laughs> uh, dude, I am the most self-conscious dancer in the world. And I so get that. It is... 
I used to have to be drunk to dance. And even then, it was, uh, yeah. I've always looked at people that, that dance unselfconsciously. Um, it's just like, what planet are you on? How are you not terrified of people judging you? This is a struggle in a sentence filled out by a woman who calls herself uh, Dickweed. And about her misophonia, she writes, It feels like even if I were getting married or sending my child to their first day of school or just simply sitting happily reading the newspaper, if someone around me starts trying to clear their throat for more than 15 seconds, I will cut their fucking head off. Snapshot from her life. Sitting on the bus on the way home from work after a great fulfilling and productive day. In a state of boiling inner rage at the man in front of me who has been snorting back phlegm and coughing consistently for the past 30 minutes of my hour-long journey. Suffering from misophonia during winter in Melbourne as a daily user of public transport is the freshest fucking hell I have encountered in my life so far. I don't have misophonia and that would drive me bananas. Um, if you have money, you might consider getting those noise-canceling headphones. Um, they do a pretty damn good job of, of tuning things out and uh, maybe putting on the podcast and turning the volume up and listening to this voice. Oh, yeah. Sweet, sweet DJ. Do you have anything mean to say to me, DJ voice? I love you, Paul. Wow. Did you change? You used to be mean to me all the time. Got nothing but love for you, buddy. Oh, thank you. <laughs> You're a dick. Oh, so you were just setting me up. Playing on my vulnerability. Paul, I think this I think this bid has worn itself out. Coming up, Eddie Money! Gonna be at the Park Theater. That is it was such a half-assed DJ bit. So close to going back and erasing that. But my half-finished game of civilization is moments away. Oh, it's been so delicious. It has been so delicious lately. Uh, last night, played from 10 at night till 6 in the morning. Hmm, that's healthy. But I didn't shame myself. I made myself get up at 11 and I went to the gym. So that cancels it out. Whatever you say, Paul. This is a struggle in a sentence filled out by Fat Fraud. And uh, his issue is depression. And he writes, uh, Nobody can possibly hate me as much as I do. And I'm terrified to find out that I'm wrong. And more terrified to find out why. That is, that is just, uh, again, a small poem. A small poem. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Wade. And he is, this is only partially filled out, but he's straight in his 20s, raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment, never been sexually abused, but he has been physically and emotionally abused. And um, he writes, growing up, all I wanted was a good relationship with my dad. My parents divorced when I was six. And for my dad to recognize me and be proud of me. Instead, I had a father who never showed up to any of my events I asked him to, and on top, and on the one time he did show up, 
to soccer practice to pick me up, he commented on the warm-up lap, asking, why weren't you in first? Jesus Christ. Whenever I asked my dad to make more of an effort to have a relationship with me, he would always say he would, and then when he eventually ditched me or, quote, forgot we were supposed to spend time with each other, he blamed it on me and laughed at me when I said I was hurt by him. I later learned that when I was a toddler, I was physically abused by my dad disguised as punishment. Spanking taken too far, bruises, etc. I blocked all those memories out, thankfully. I mean, that is exactly what I was talking about with the other survey, is that bond. We want to ignore any truth, any truth, to keep that bond with their parent. Uh, Any positive experiences? The starting point of every cycle of forgiveness. My dad would apologize for for whatever you say I did to hurt you. Um, That was in quotes, whatever you say I did to hurt you, and promised to make an effort. It made me feel valued by him and hopeful that this would be the last time. uh, Hopeful that this would be the time that everything would be okay. It never was. I think the fact that his phrasing was whatever you say I did to hurt you, um, you know, apologizing for whatever I, you say I did to hurt you. Uh, that, I mean, he might as well say, uh, yeah, that stuff you were talking about that I kind of tuned out on, um, yeah, yeah, that's a bummer. I mean, your dad sounds like a bad sitcom character, uh, like a badly written dick. And then Darkest Secrets, I'm afraid that I've made up or over-dramatized how my dad has hurt me and I've irreparably damaged the only chance I have at a good relationship with my biological father. And you have not over-dramatized it. We could have just heard what he said about you not being in first on the warm-up lap and that would have explained everything. That would have explained everything. Um... And this is going to sound cheesy as fuck, but I don't know. It's like you're going to have to choose, I think, between a good relationship with yourself or a fantasy relationship with your father because you can't have both. There is no good relationship with your father. And, you know, unless he turned on a dime and did intensive work, but he sounds like a complete narcissist and narcissists very rarely get any kind of help. Um, I just would love to see you choose, choose yourself. And I know that sounds cheesy, but you know what? I chose myself. I was in a unhealthy relationship with a parent and I'm so fucking glad I chose myself. And it has been just one of the best decisions, one of the most painful decisions, but one of the best decisions I ever made. And there you have it. This is an awful moment filled out by um, CG, and she's 15. And she writes, at age 13, I was scrolling through Facebook when I saw my dad's girlfriend's relationship status update to married. My relationship with my dad has become so formal that my first instinct was to send him a congratulations text instead of being even remotely bothered by the fact that I felt Facebook was sending me a notification saying, you now have a stepmother, as if technology was so advanced that they could predict when my father was being a neglectful fuck. 
It's awesome. And awful. Hence, awfulsome. Um, this is filled out by Water Lover, and she writes um, about her relationship uh, with her mom, and she's had lots of trauma but doesn't, doesn't go into it. I am full of resentment towards my mom and full of disgust for myself for being resentful of my mom. Man, you hit the nail on the head. There seems to be a theme in this, uh, not only this episode, but these surveys. And these were not picked, you know, with any particular theme in mind. But the the pain and the overwhelming fear of speaking up for ourselves with with a parent. And I, and I think part part of it is that genetic bond that um just that primal emotional bond that that we have with the parent but the other thing i think that is hard is abusive parents are often really manipulative and really um can just really be a mind fuck you put those two, th- two things together and that that, that is a one two punch this was filled out by pale pale organic depressive um she's a teenager and she writes about her bulimia explaining the crippling fear and grief and loneliness of hating yourself and your relationship to the world with eating makes me nervous ha ha you guys are amazing just amazing you're you're ability to encapsulate such complex intense things in a sentence or two just never ceases to amaze me this is a happy moment filled out by a woman who calls herself tough guy she writes when i told my partner about how my mom said seeing my stretch marks from gaining weight made her so sad and his response was you mean your lightning bolts i love those for a brief second, I could see myself, how my partner views me, and I was actually beautiful. Love it. Love it. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by HB, and I'm um, just going to read a couple of excerpts from it. She's 19. She's bisexual. She was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Um, she was um, raped although she doesn't believe, uh, she was not sure if it was, but she said no, and the guy still entered her. Um, She's been physically and emotionally abused and uh, by her mother. Really, really fucking uh, abusive. And any positive experiences with with the abusers. And this, to me, is one of the most fascinating things about this, this survey is how dark and light um, abusive people can be, how complex human beings can be. Um, Although if you think about it really in this one, let me just go ahead and read it. This one really isn't that black and white. Uh, Any positive experiences with the abusers? Definitely. My mother is my mother after all. My father committed suicide when I was eight and she has gone through so much to take care of me, having practically already raised my older brothers. Between the death of my father, 
her own food addiction, our poverty, the foreclosure of our house, and fear of homeless homelessness on top of my own emerging mental illness. I often don't want to say she did any wrong because I'm not sure if I could do better. Those That is all irrelevant. Whether or not she did what she did was right or wrong, even though it's wrong, um, whether or not you could do any better, none of that matters. What matters is getting in touch with what it is that you're feeling and opening up to somebody about it so that poison that whatever you want to call it doesn't weigh you down for the rest of your life that's important and as you begin to do those things you will have clarity on how to handle things in the future that's what's so great do just by opening up path paths start to emerge in our life and we begin to intuitively understand how to handle future uh, situations that present themselves. So, um, I I just want to. Uh, and by the way, um, you didn't. You aren't responsible for any of those things that that you listed that your mom had to deal with. And you can have compassion for the fact that your mom experienced all those things, but not at the exclusion of compassion for yourself. That's what I should have just said instead of all of that. Um, darkest thoughts. I fantasize about cutting myself in front of others so they can see the pain that I have and can't deny that I am mentally ill. A lot of times in my life, despite being on medications, receiving disability services, and having three different specialists I see almost weekly, my family won't admit that I am mentally ill. My brother likes to say, I'm just going through a rough time. When I think about cutting myself in front of him or showing him all of my self-harm scars, I am ashamed, yet it feels cathartic because I feel like he wouldn't be able to deny that. You know, that makes perfect sense to me that, that your urge is to do that. But you're also trying to get through to people that don't speak the language that you speak, which is, ugh, I hate this phrase, the emotions of the language of the heart. And it is crazy making, try, expecting people that don't speak a language to speak a language. So your mission is to find people that speak that language and let them be your family. Maybe your other, your real family will come around. Maybe they'll change. Maybe they won't, but at least you won't be cutting yourself um, and living in that fantasy that people are going to change. Some people do, but a lot don't. Oh, that was obvious. Darkest Secrets, I am a compulsive shoplifter. I don't like that I do this, and I'm not a very materialistic person, but shop, shoplifting is a way to do something that I know is wrong and perhaps be caught could be caught for. I almost want to be caught. Being caught would mean attention and validation that not all I do is right. Wow, that is heavy. That is really heavy. Thank you for that. You have so much insight, man. A, a a support group would so benefit from having somebody like you in it. Would so benefit. 
Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Don't slide your sleeves up subtly and hope they see your scars. If you trust them enough to care, talk to them. Man. HB. That is some good shit. Now, if you could just take your advice. If you could just take your own advice. It's amazing. 90% of the surveys that I read, the answer to that question, what would you say to someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? You say exactly what it is that you need to hear, but for some reason we don't allow ourselves the same compassion that we would afford other people. It's incredible. This is a struggle in a sentence survey filled out by Kay, and he writes about his anxiety. It's like I have six different bosses who remind me when I make a mistake, but all six bosses are me, and I didn't even make a mistake. That is awesome. Um, About his alcoholism, I can't stop, and I'm afraid to ask for help. Oh, buddy. I've been there. I've been there. And I can tell you, your life unraveling from alcohol, untreated alcoholism or drug addiction is one quintillion times more frightening and dangerous and real than the fear of asking for help. But I understand it. I understand. I was talking with somebody after my support group about that tonight. And this guy is gone 30 years of needing help and never asked for help and he's at his wits end but I think he's finally starting to open up and it it never ceases to amaze me how frightening that first bit of vulnerability is to say hey I'm not doing so good can you got a minute? Can I talk to you? But you can do it. You can do it. About his love addiction, I miss her so much and I hate her so much. Snapshot from his life, crying in the morning from a nightmare. And by the way, love addiction, every bit as dangerous as alcoholism and drug addiction. Every bit. It's a, it is a drug addiction and the drug is in our The pharmacy is in our head. It's open 24 hours, and it tells us that intensity is intimacy and love, and it's not. Love addiction is not about love. It's an intimacy disorder. Snapshot from his life, crying in the morning from a nightmare about my ex, looking through her Instagram, shaking with fear and rage at her new boyfriend and her new life. It should be me there with her. Yeah, dude, that's some serious shit. That is some serious shit. That 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 is a drug raging through your body. And it is it is a mental illness love addiction is. It distorts reality. And um you could wind up hurting yourself or somebody else just like a, you know, an alcoholic could by driving drunk. Um there's a lot of great support groups for it. Sending you love, man. Sending you a hug. This is filled out by Adult Child, and she writes, um, 
about her codependency. It's like this constant internal conflict of who am I? I'm a different person with everyone I meet, just being how they are so they like me. I've been doing it since I was little. I don't even know who the real me is. Snapshot from her life. My father screaming at my brother's fiance at a dinner. I felt like I wasn't even in my own body. I was so numb. And when the fiance apologized to me, I just kept saying, it's fine, it's okay. Meanwhile, I was crying inside. Once we went our separate ways, I cried the whole way home. That's what codependency is. Pretending everything's fine while keeping all the pain inside. Worried you'll rock the boat even more if you show your sadness. So profound. So profound. I used to think that if I presented a version of myself that I thought that you would like, I would be safe and my future would be secure and I would be okay. And it was the very thing that was killing me. And the very thing I feared, which is letting you see me, is the very thing that has saved my life. That is how powerful mental illness and addiction is. This is, I'm just going to read a, a uh, portion of this one. This is um, a shame and secret survey. And this is from uh, Debbie Downer. And she was, she's in her 30s. She's straight, raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. I'd say it's even worse than that. She was uh, sexually abused by her stepfather. And um, she writes, once I got up the courage to tell him to stop, he would then... Uh, he started doing other things Uh, it makes me nauseous to think about it and it makes me angry that once I finally told my mom she chose to believe him over me and you know most people say that have experienced that 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 hurts even more than the sexual abuse and I I that makes perfect sense to me that that would that that would hurt more um Darkest secrets. I haven't told many people about the sexual abuse. I still see my stepdad often, and I try to forget what happened to keep things civil between my mom and I. My sister cut off all relations with him, and my mom has never forgiven her. I'm afraid if I tell her my feelings, she will not speak to me again. That is unconditional love of the highest order. And like I said to the other person in the other survey... You have a choice. Do you choose your mom or do you choose yourself? And you know who I'm rooting for. Wow, that's that. Almost, I almost sounded like a drag queen right there. You know who I'm rooting for, girl. I am waving my finger side to side and moving my neck. Mm-hmm. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? To my mom, why she chose my stepdad's word over mine. Because your mom is afraid. Because your mom is an emotionally immature, damaged person. And she is terrified of being alone. Or terrified of confronting something in her life, maybe, that happened to her 
that she didn't speak up about, and she's just buried it. There could be a thousand different reasons, but none of them have to do with how lovable you are. None of them. Your mom is filtering it all through her own bullshit. But sending you some love. Sending you some love. Am I being cheap with the love tonight? Am I doing it to too many people? Way too many, Paul. I'm beginning to hate DJ Voice as much as the people that hated him the first time they heard him. This is an awfulsome moment um, from Imone. Uh, we've read surveys from her uh, before. And I'm just going to fast forward. Uh, it's a little on the long side, um, so I'm just going to fast forward to um, to part of it. Uh, just give you some, some background. She was um, snorkeling on a boat with her family and the waves were uh, got really uh, big and everybody was getting seasick and she went into a bathroom threw up uh, in the bathroom and as she left the bathroom she writes I saw a small boy practically comatose wrapped in a fluffy towel being held tightly by his mother he looked miserable and clearly had been seasick as well I clung to the edge of the boat, dry heaving over the side, with water spraying in my face as the boat slammed violently down, wave after wave. A woman went into the bathroom where I had vomited and immediately started gagging and complaining about the smell. I immediately felt intense shame knowing that it was my vomit she was smelling. I chastised myself for feeling shame over something I couldn't help, but then felt it again as she brought the trash can back out asking a deckhand to please do something about it so she could help her daughter in the bathroom. I apologized feebly and dry heaved over the side of the boat again. I then looked over at the small boy wrapped up, snuggled against his mother's bosom, and began to cry. I wanted to be that boy being protected from the cold spray of the water, and to be held in such a way to minimize the, an the impact of the waves. My inner child began to feel self-pity, and I began to yearn for something that I never even had to begin with. I began to spiral downward into the depths of my needs, and then suddenly my seven-year-old staggered to my side to also vomit. I pulled myself together as I held back her hair and she leaned over the side of the boat. I rubbed her back and I did some deep breaths with her. We commiserated on how awful we felt and I wrapped my arms around her to protect her from the ocean spray. I went from being a little child to a grown-ass woman in the span of 10 seconds, but I can still feel the tug of that inner child and the intense desire to be held and protected even now days later on dry land. That is so beautiful. I've never read anything more beautiful involving vomit. That might be the only thing beautiful involving vomit. Um, you guys just fucking rock. Eventual Caterpillar Husk writes about his codependency. I will manage everyone's every thought and every feeling forever. It is so fantastic. And I think you can do it. I think if you just try hard enough and are clever enough and don't sleep and find out what everybody likes and doesn't like on the planet, I think you can do it. Get back to me on that. I'll be up playing Civilization 
trying to digitally control what everybody does on the planet. This is a struggle in a sentence survey filled out by Wakey Wakey Eggs and the Crushing Weight of Living. I don't even know what that means, but I like it. I know what the Crushing Weight of Living does, but I don't know what Wakey Wakey Eggs means. Is that uh, like breakfast eggs? About her codependency. So it turns out I'm not laid back, just desperately eager to please. Awesome. Snapshot from her life. Uh... The last two nights at work have been really shitty, and I was laying there across my desk when it started to rain. The roof at the office where I work leaks all over the place, so I put out buckets and called my boss. Nothing for it, he says. Just leave the buckets out. Whatever. Go back to my desk, stare blankly into space, periodically throw things whenever I get a call because how dare they interrupt my depressive episode with things like leaking catheter bags and blown tires. Finally, an hour and a half before the end of my shift, the ceiling can't take it anymore and the tile right beside my desk crashes down and water and cardboard tile bits go everywhere. Fuck it. Nothing for it but to let it sit there, half in and half out of the bucket until my boss comes in to relieve me. That is like a little Coen Brothers movie right there. I could ju- I can see... Like William H. Macy or uh, uh, Francis McDormand sitting there at the desk. Some horrible local uh, radio show on, uh, on, the, on the radio. Yeah, what else would it be on the TV? Actually, I do get radio on the TV. This is a struggle in a sentence filled out by Totally Not Herbert. And uh, he writes about his depression. Feels like there are tons of treats, but I never get enough. Snowshot from your life. The treat is there, then it's gone. Why isn't there more? Any comments to make the podcast better? Paul should give Herbert more treats. Herbert is a good boy. First time listeners must be like, what the fuck Twilight Zone have I wandered into? This is a happy moment filled out by a woman who calls herself annoyingly full of energy. And... um just a little backstory. I'm, I'm fast forwarding uh, through it. And she has terrible social anxiety and she has been at um, a job for quite a while. And there's a boss who's a very, uh, doesn't, is very abrupt and kind of intense and um, intimidating. And she had shared with him um, that she has social anxiety, and it was really hard for her to to share that with him, and he didn't really seem that interested in the fact that she had that. But then she writes, um, he caught me in the hallway in the hallway later that day, and even though the whole conversation was only about work, I sensed deep caring in his eyes and the whole attitude. Nothing was said, but I felt he wanted to protect me uh, whenever our paths cross. Paul, I feel like stepping out of my fear and letting others know what a silly problem I deal with has given me the foundations for feeling safe and protected. After all, I had avoided professions that require talking for my whole adulthood. Now my knees no longer shiver. My voice is steady. I can walk up to anyone. Yes, I'm still afraid, but it no longer stops me. It's amazing. Amazing. 
There is so much beauty and possibility on the other side of that fear. And fear is a mile high, a mile wide, and paper thin. You know that thing that they the, the players run through when they come out of the tunnel for a football game, that, that big circular piece of paper? That's what, that's what fear is. And we spend so much of our lives standing in the tunnel going, oh, it looks like concrete. I can't, there's no way. And everybody is on the other side saying, no, it's not, it's just paper. And our brain tells us, no, it's concrete. It's concrete. Travis writes about his depression. It hides in the background till I am weak, then throws itself on me and smothers me. The world around me then caves in on itself and everything turns numb. This happens one week out of every month. I guess it's my man period. Snapshot from his life. Feeling like the laziest, most ungrateful, selfish, unproductive, time-wasting person in my city. Everyone else is playing the game so easily and I can't seem to find enough meaning or enthusiasm to join in. Next minute, I know exactly what I will do. I will start this business. I will start this group. I will write this book. I will get healthy again. The cycle continues day in, day out. That sounds like... like uh, rapid cycling bipolar, but I don't know. I'm, I am not a therapist. I'm not a doctor, but I am a hypochondriac and that has to count for something. This is a survey I read. Um, it really just touched me so deeply. This is by a kid. Um, he's 14, he's gay and his name is Cookie. And he's never been sexually abused. Um, he's raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Um, he says that he's never been emotionally abused and not sure if he's been physically abused. He writes, I am unsure of what is wrong with me. My friend thinks that I was physically abused by my brother, but I don't agree. My parents made me feel inadequate and unimportant due to my brother's disabilities, but it's not their fault. Um, yes. Whether it doesn't matter what your parents' intent was, what matters is that you feel inadequate and unimportant. That's what matters. And whether you want to call it emotional abuse or emotional neglect, what you are experiencing is real. People don't make that kind of thing up. There is better shit to do with your imagination than that. So um, I just want to say that that is real. That is a real thing. Any positive experiences with uh, your abusers? I love my brothers and my parents, but I uh, could not ever open to them, up to them about how I feel. I would like to move out so I don't have to talk to them. Darkest thoughts. I think about suicide a lot. I have told some friends about this, but not my parents. I'm scared they will freak out and obsess over me. Darkest secrets. I let I have lived a privileged life, had always had plenty of money and not sexual, physical, or emotional abuse apart from what I said before. I want you, I, I Cookie, I really hope that you're listening to this episode and I want you to, if you haven't yet, listen to the episode with Dr. Janice Webb and I think it will ring some bells for you. And in the meantime, open up, find a parent that feels safe for you to talk to or a counselor 
or somebody, but um, you don't... Oh, let me finish reading his survey. Uh, what, if anything, would you like to say to someone um, you haven't been able to? I hate myself so much. I think about killing myself every day. I am so sad that I feel nauseous and don't eat or sleep, and I'm gay. You are so okay exactly as you are, Cookie. You may not feel accepted in your environment, but your life is going to change eventually. It is, you are not going to have to live in your house forever. Um, I don't know how your parents would react to you coming out, so I can't give you any kind of advice on that. But fuck anybody who doesn't love you because you're gay, who doesn't love you because you're struggling emotionally or mentally. Um, how could you be a 14-year-old gay child living in our society and not on some level be struggling emotionally or mentally? I, I, you would have to live in some type of... Uh, town that I don't know if uh, it, it exists. I'm sure it does somewhere. I'm sure. But, buddy, uh, and then he writes, um, what if anything do you wish for? I, I would wish for happiness, but I don't want to be happy. I can't explain it. I don't want anything. I think that's one of the reactions of when we begin to lose hope is that we just, like a wounded animal, we just want to pull away and not have to do anything. But that's not, it's not the way to go, buddy. It is not the way to go. And while I don't know what it's like to be in your circumstance, I do know what it's like to feel hopeless and to not want to be around. And it, it is a temporary thing that you're going through. That I know for absolutely certain. I just might have made that word up. But um, have you shared these things with others? Yes, some friends. Um, how do you feel after writing these things down? I feel like an attention whore because I feel like I'm taking this survey for sympathy. These are all things, Cookie, that people going through depression or people who live with depression feel. This is a real thing that you're going through. This is None of this is a weakness on your part and none of this is a reflection of any kind of defect in you. And there are so many people listening right now that just want to give you a hug and tell you that you are a beautiful, beautiful kid who is sensitive and vulnerable and and those are the kind of people that make the world a better place you know even if just for us stick around cookie stick around so you can help us because that's the t that is the type of person the people that are forced to grow when they're young, 
that, most of my best friends, that's are people that grew up in difficult circumstances and had to do a lot of introspection and thought about suicide and thought life was never going to get better. And, and it did get better for them. And now they can appreciate the fact that if they're just patient, things will change. And that worrying about what everybody thinks of us is, is a prison of our own making if we if we let it but thank you for sharing that and i really hope that you hear this this is a happy moment filled out by um and this is a 15 year old and and i thought it w- this was just such uh ser- serendipity is that the right word that this within an hour of reading Going through the surveys and finding yours, I found this one. And this is filled out by a trans male um, who is 15. And he calls himself, I've reached the end of my tether and now I'm going to hang myself with it. But remember, this is a happy moment. And he shares, going to a support group for the first time. It's open to all ages, but I'm the only non-adult being practically disassociated from anxiety, which quickly dissipates being welcomed and treated like a human, being seen, feeling protected, for once passing as a boy and being told, I can't believe you're transgender. And then in parentheses, the biggest compliment a trans boy can get, despite what people and the media may want you to believe. We don't want to be special special snowflakes. We just want to be normal. People remarking how complete I am, my actions, the way I look, very male, being called brave for being trans, not naive or confused. When I speak, being referred to as intelligent, not selfish, immature, or attention-seeking. Instantly feeling more at home at the group than at my home with my family, in parentheses, by blood. It's the one thing I look forward to most every month. It replenishes anything I thought I had lost from being drained the time period leading up to it being accepted and seen, felt, heard, complimented, not questioned or belittled or bossed around or told what to do. There's absolutely no sense of, I'm big, you're little, I'm smart, you're dumb, which I get in basically everywhere else in life. Never thought going to a support group could be like this. Incredible. I feel so humbled when I'm there. I can be totally honest to people who aren't judgmental. They're the best people ever. I mean... What can you do after reading that except drop the fucking mic, huh? Thank you for that. And finally, this is an awful moment filled out by Venus. And she writes, Until I entered my current relationship, happy, healthy, and supportive, my number one coping strategy was putting myself in risky sexual situations. I would meet up with strangers who I met online or briefly at parties, go to their place, and have very emotionless, alcohol-perpetuated, and often unprotected sex. My self-worth is usually pretty awful. One whispers, want to, uh, one One night, I met a guy at a party about my age and went home with him. In the throes of self-esteem-inducing lust, he whispers, Want to see something exciting? I braced myself for whatever the fuck this stranger was about to do to me. Then he reached into his mouth and pulled out a set of fake teeth and smiled a bizarre, toothless smile before continuing 
to make out sloppily with me, dentures laying on the side of his bed. Good thing I was tipsy enough to ignore his totally unsexy move. Nothing wrong with fake teeth, but did he really expect that to turn me on? When we woke up the next morning, he couldn't find the fake teeth, and he accused me of stealing them. I didn't, but the thought of me doing the walk of shame back home with dentures tucked in my bra makes me laugh. You guys are so awesome. You guys are just so fucking awesome. Thank you for your surveys. Um, thank you for those of you that uh, financially support the show. Thank you those of you that, thank you that support it through social media or that email me um, or that tell your friends about it or, or that learn something from this that helps you and then share it with somebody else. Um, all of that stuff. Um, so just remember if you're out there and you're, you're struggling, especially you, Cookie, um, it's, it's, it's not just a bullshit saying. It, doesn't, it can and it does get better. Um, it's not to say that, that life is easy or perfect or any of that, but um, it just takes opening to get the ball rolling and it's not never as scary as you think it's going to be i mean that email that the survey that i read from that 15 year old that's um that's the whole reason i started the podcast is to try to spread the word about all the beautiful situations that can come from having to face adversity it's a forced gym membership it is a beautiful gift in horrible wrapping paper. And if you give up, you never get to open it. You never get to open it. And um, just remember, you're not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody fucked up I know in some weird is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.